Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We've got a packed Wednesday show for you. Weldon Rodenberg. President Rippy Wright's football correspondent. You might remember him. It's been a couple weeks or it's a couple months since he's been on the pod. We had a uh, spring football primer. Ole Miss started spring football practice on Tuesday. Had Weldon on to talk uh, quarterback battle, reshaping the roster. A lot of good roster building and recruiting stuff in there. You know, what it's like for recruiters on the first day of spring and finding out whether the guys they could, they've recruited can play or not. Um, some insight on some of the new additions that Ole Miss has had since coaching staff chemistry Kiffin's opening press conference, really just a lot of wide-ranging stuff, plus the fastest-growing segment on American Soil Soccer Corner, and I teed him up to bash LSU and everything going on down there at the end. So, uh, just like the fall, again, Weldon Rodenberg back on the show. Really enjoyed the conversation, as uh, as usual, as we uh, get you ready for some spring football storylines and uh, some other stuff. So, anyway, loaded show for you today. Buckle up. But before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox went oh, plus five units through the first couple of days of March Madness. A profitable weekend. They've got the NASCAR package going on right now. You can still get the NASCAR package for uh, – until March 31st for the season with 30% off if you use the promo code NASCAR. So you don't want to miss out. They're crushing it with the new equipment. They figured it out. The NASCAR package is finally up and running, going behind the paywall. Get it now. Use the promo code NASCAR for 30% off through the end of the month. And then on top of that, go ahead and buy the March Madness package. You've got the Sweet 16 games, the Elite Eight games coming up this weekend. You don't want to be like what you probably were like last weekend where you're sitting there on Sunday night watching Arizona TCU trying to climb out of a hole, sitting there thinking, my God, how am I going to pay this bookie? Ask, let the bookie pay you. Skybox is going to help you do that more consistently than anyone else. Avoid those Monday scaries that also drain your bank account. Use skyboxsportspicks.com. They're going to have a picks package for any sport to fit your price range, whether it's month-long, season-long. I'd recommend just going with the year-long all-access pass to Skybox Sports. You're going to make your money back and a whole hell of a lot more. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Great time of the year for the guys at Skybox. Busy, busy stuff over there. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. LB's is the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is so lucky to have it. I'm looking at a couple baseball series to come back to, and I'm already planning my trip to LB's for when I do head back to Oxford because that is one of the first places I miss and I'm excited to get back to when we, uh, when we make it back to Oxford over here from uh, Texas. But right now, if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me a couple of times a week, plus discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. Just go in there, show Greg proof of subscription, and you're all set. Then go find your own favorites, all kinds of delicious cuts, fresh sausage, seafood, uh, all kinds of delicious sides, crab stuff. Mushrooms are always delicious. I like the filet burgers. Greg's got it going on over there. He wants to make your grilling experience great. And if you go in there, he will absolutely enhance the grilling experience. The weather's getting warmer. you got baseball games on all weekend. got two night Ole Miss baseball games this weekend. They're playing on Friday and Saturday night. Throw something on the grill, sit on your back porch, pour some brown water up, and enjoy a nice LB's cut of meat. 
there's no better way to spend a spring Saturday. Check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Got that Ridgeland location, or excuse me, Glugstadt location coming there soon to serve the central Mississippi area. Probably going to get Greg on to have a grill corner in the next couple of weeks to, uh, to also promote that. So check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, here is my old pal Weldon Rodenberg talking some football. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's EPL correspondent Weldon Rodenberg back from the offseason uh, out of hibernation. It's still sunlight behind you. We're past daylight savings. It is the spring. What do football guys do in the spring? Nothing. <laughs> I remember maybe during fall more, but, you know, there's so many days where you're kind of like, okay, what do we do next? It's the first time you have like a real break is right after the, the official signing day that you have now in February between spring, you kind of like get to go do stuff, but it's such a weird time for a, a vacation or a break. It's like, where are you really going to go in late February, March? That's going to be, fun and obviously you know I don't have a house in the Bahamas so you won't see me there anytime soon uh so you know usually you just go home and you would kind of hang out for a few weeks or maybe you'd stay in Oxford it, it just kind of depends but uh when I was working there not a whole lot and currently my time is being taken up by March Madness soccer literally anything else so it is uh nice to be back but begging you to get back on no big deal, but <laughs> couple uh, uh, couple more seasons doing this podcast. You have a couple a uh, couple uh, oceanfront properties somewhere, so we're getting there one day at a time. Um, yeah, it's going to be hard to work in some Ole Miss football in between the uh, U.S. national team and uh, EPL that we really came to talk about. <laughs> um, so there's a number of places we can start. Obviously, in all seriousness, Ole Miss started spring football today. That's what we're going to chat about for a bit. It's um. There's so many places we could start here because I want to get from like the personnel side because I was fascinated. I think a lot of people were through uh, a couple of times throughout the season, you talking about how like spring being kind of the make or break when you recruit a kid, like the first day kind of got the jitters of like, can this kid play or not? Because you can find out pretty quick. But before we get to that side of it, I had a couple of general thoughts from Kiffin's press conference today. Um, you know, in the past, I remember I tried to think back as, as a reporter, I covered predominantly the Matt Luke years and Spring, I wouldn't say was the most exciting time. Some of that is because, you know, you had baseball going on. They were pretty good. That wasn't, you know, the height of Ole Miss's football program at the time. And spring just kind of was what it was. Like, they had a young quarterback in Corral, you know, some new faces. But it never really felt like you were going to learn much because spring is such like a sometimes just a formality in a lot of senses from a media coverage standpoint. But I feel like this one's different. And I think Kiffin talked about that a little bit today because of this one transfer portal and how teams are building their roster year to year now and retooling. There's probably increased value from even the player like uh, coach side of it to actually get chemistry because there's so much new on this Ole Miss roster from coaching staff to immediate impact transfer guys. Do you kind of subscribe to the theory that spring I know it's always been important to some degree, but takes on heightened importance because of the amount of new kids that they're going to have there in the spring. Yeah, I think it's definitely more important, not only because you have all the new kids coming in, the transfers and some of the early enrollees, but you also, just with this staff, have two new coordinators. Right. And uh, I know he mentioned that, you know, Charlie's going to call plays and Partridge's going to call plays, and they're going to kind of roll over some of the scheme they had from last year. Uh, but it's still just a new, new environment, new terminology to an extent. Uh, and then you're including 17, 18 new players. Um, from the portal who have not been in this program at all. 
Uh, I think it shapes up to be an incredibly important spring. I think that's probably going to be all around the country. It's just a different dynamic with these kids coming in. Um, and some of these kids are one-year guys. Some are two-year guys. Um, you really shouldn't have as many surprises uh, if, if you've kind of done your homework and you know as much as you can about these kids. And they've already had college films. So you kind of know what you're getting to an extent. Um, so it's not going to be – it shouldn't be a huge evaluation period except for some of the high school kids right. uh, that will be in there. And I don't really remember how many early enrollees they have. I can pull it up. It's 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 your typical number. It's like a handful. Um, like seven, I'll pull it up in a second. Six yeah, or seven, maybe. Number. Yeah. Um, so really, it'll just be kind of getting used to the new coaches. I mean, they've got new coaches all over the place. Uh, they'll have new drills, new mindsets, new new things they work on, and it's more spread out. Um, fall camp is a grind, or summer camp, fall camp, whatever you call it. Spring is more of like a kind of get your get your feet under you kind of time for a lot of these kids. It's a lot more competing. Uh, you have those Saturday practices, scrimmages, whatever you want to call them. They're not that, you know, very well put together. Not well put together, but they're not, you know, very organized necessarily as a game. It's just kind of a let's get our pads on and see what we got going here, a little more structure. Um, but it's just, you know, three weeks of it, and it's just kind of spread out. You're not practicing every day. You're practicing every three days, every four days. Um, so it, it's nice to get back out there. But for them, it's going to be more just kind of getting used to the new coaches uh, more than it would be evaluating what you have. I don't remember how much staff turnover you guys had in the couple of years that you were there. But just from the perspective of having been inside a football building before, how difficult is like the change from a personnel and a coaching staff standpoint? Because you look at this old Miss – Coaching staff, okay, I could be wrong about this, but in terms of position coaches that are on the field, isn't everyone new but Joiner? Is some no Partridge obviously gets the Partridge is still there. Is it, it's Partridge, Joiner, and Nicks. It's it, I may be missing someone else. Point being, they're replacing the majority of their staff. Just yeah. from the standpoint of like having forget the players part of it, just having chemistry as a staff. Like how what is that adjustment period? Like how difficult is that? And how like how long before it maybe doesn't feel new, if that makes any sense at all? Uh, well, you're not around the players as much until you right. really get back in spring and a few weeks before spring. So I think you kind of have to start learning your players. And that's really where the, the kind of getting used to it comes from. Uh, I mean, they'll adjust the lane schedule, you know, as it goes. Um, his schedule is all over the place, as many people have mentioned. Um, and that'll be new for some of these coaches, I'm sure. Uh, but some of the coaches have worked for him before. Like like Charlie will, will have literally no issues. He'll know exactly what to expect. Right. But what he's going to have to do is get used to, you know, knowing Luke and Kincaid and, and Dart. And that will be kind of the adjustment period for the players and the coaches. Uh, when I was there, my first year was was Longo and, uh, Prime, and Dog. Prime Dog. So then the next year was uh, Rich Rod and – um, Mac. Rich Rod and, and Mac, and then Lane and Levy. So I had three offensive coordinators, three defensive coordinators for the for the three years I worked there. Um, so there was a ton of turnover, and a lot of those were. I mean, you couldn't go from a more different personalities and game plan and the way they structured practice from Longo to Rich Rod to Levy. <laughs> 
defensively, I've always thought that, like, the, the defense kind of has a different mindset in the way they practice and the way they do things. Yeah, the scheme might be different, but a lot of the drills and a lot of the, the structure of the way those guys practice is not overly different. Um, but, yeah, so I, I've seen what turnover looks like. and But it's definitely a little bit different when you have so many assistant coaches um, because they will take on different roles, such as special teams, which I know people don't love and think that that's interesting. But uh, from that the way that, like, Coons and Summerall handled special teams, the way that uh, Gideon's handled it was completely different and took a completely different angle. Uh, for the players. So there's a lot of changes, but it's not necessarily something that's going to take months to get used to for the players and the coaches. You know, everyone's been in this business for a while. If you're coaching at the SEC level, uh, they'll, they'll figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah. And you made a good point with regarding uh, Weiss having worked for Kiffin before. And at the end of the day, as much new as there is, at least both coordinators have worked for Kiffin before, right? You do the internal promotion, with Chris Partridge and then Weiss has been there before. I hadn't necessarily thought about it from that perspective. So that would certainly help a bit. Let's hit a couple of new, uh, nuggets from Kiffin's press conference today. Um, it's He's a fascinating figure because there's some days where that guy looks like he could not give a shit about being in front of a microphone that day. And he's going to answer as short as possible until he's no longer in front of a microphone. But then there's some days and it's becoming, maybe there's just been more to talk about. I don't know if this is a theme, but maybe it's growing on him a bit. And he's a little more comfortable as comfortable as you can be with the local media that he still doesn't know that well. And you know, how can you in this day and age in college football, but he was in more, he's been more engaged lately. And I thought today was a day that certainly qualified as that. He kind of went all over the place in some aspects of it. Um, let's just start there because we talked about the last time I had you on, I think we did like some old Miss football, some re- roster retooling, but it was actually a lot of Sean Payton stuff. So at this point, that was quite a while ago. We had texted throughout like the offs, like the early signing period in the off season part of it. And it's like, Oh, they're not doing great on the high school front. You know, we've kind of, I mean, that'd be beating a dead horse at this point, but there was like a point where I felt like it was kind of the consensus of holy hell, what are these guys going to do to retool the roster next year? And then all of a sudden you looked up like the third week in February and it's like, hey, actually they did this better. Like the portal strategy felt like a gamble where they actually hit the winning ticket, at least on paper. I was surprised, a little bit mildly surprised at the amount of talent they were able to pull in. Just from an entire roster standpoint as they head into next year, I saw someone on the board uh, about a week or two ago maybe make the argument or pose the question of like overall – from just the 22 starters that they'll roll out opening day, could you make an argument it's a better roster? I think there's an argument to be made. You know, it's fair, unfair, but just what are your thoughts now that the roster is somewhat complete? They'll go for a couple more transfers post-spring, but it's complete-ish. Yeah, that's a that's a take. Uh, I could say that there's more depth in more important places sure. on this roster. Um I mean, you lose Ely, Snoop, and Parrish. You flip that for Evans, Bentley, and then Judkins. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's hard to say that they're better. Sure. Uh, when you lose two guys like like Corral and Sam Williams, it's like those are damn near irreplaceable at the college level. You just don't get two guys like them very often. But by committee, and if Dart is what I think he can be and what they think he can be, um, then, yeah, I, I think that saying that they're a better, more complete roster is not like a hot take by any means. Um, they have filled so many positions in the portal, way more than 
I, I'm willing to say that he anticipated. He, he's talked about using the portal and, like, that's going to be a huge way to build this roster. I would be shocked if you really asked him, like, genuinely in 2020, like, how he was going to do this, if he was going to say, yeah, I'm going to get, like, 17 guys in the portal. Like that, that's really how we're going to do this. I think even he's shocked at the amount of talent that's been in the portal and that, that this is the way he's gone about it. Because I, I think, you know, he's done it two years in a row and he's done it really successfully. And a ton of credit for that. My, in my opinion, he's going to just take that and roll with it. Uh, and, you know, why you know, don't fix what's not broken. Uh, and next year, I think it could even be more in the portal. Um, but it also could be kind of a, a draft, you know, NFL draft year kind of thing. Like some years, the portal is just filled with elite talent. I think this year was a huge example of that um, because of a lot of the coaching changes. I think it was unique, but coaching changes have it every year. So next year, maybe not that many elite players from random schools get in the portal and you're kind of picking and choosing and having to fight off uh, a few a few bigger schools. But uh, it's been pretty impressive. And I remember just kind of going and following it and being like, damn, like, they actually got this guy and, and this guy. You know, I mean, Kari Coleman's a kid I remember from high school and loving him. You know, he just wasn't that big and had a really good year or two at TCU. I'm like, damn, like, he just out of nowhere, he just picked Ole Miss. I don't, I don't know. I guess the joiner connection kind of makes sense. But, um, yeah, it's been really impressive. I would say they are probably deeper. Um, top end, I would say it, it's going to be tough for them to be that much better without Corral and, and Williams, but they'll they'll figure it out. I've hit myself on the mute button there. I think you answered that very well. Um, like, because that, that's kind of what I was getting at from the standpoint of just like you look at all twenty-two positions. Are they better, or like deep, potentially better or deeper across the board? And there's a real argument to be made. You can't replace the high-end playmaking, as you mentioned, like. Sam Williams and Matt Corral and expected to the exact level of production to be the same. And the part where you mentioned the portal and them maybe having more success there than maybe even they anticipated. Neil wrote a really good uh, piece today, the what he said versus what he meant that he writes after every Kiffin press conference. And the reason I asked that was because the question he got asked about um, Bennett from SMU and Kari Coleman and I can't tell if this is Neil saying this himself or like putting words in Kiffin's mouth, which is kind of the point of the or interpreting what Kiffin's trying to say. But it doesn't really matter where he leads off the what he meant part of that answer with. I still don't know how they pulled this off on learning new portal rules every day. I think that's Neil saying that himself. But I think there probably was a little bit of Kiffin being like, wow, like we may have had even more success than I even thought, which is interesting from the standpoint of they were going to have to rely on it heavily. It almost feels like, didn't we use the like cram for a test analogy? Like, you know, kind of not yeah. necessarily being the most organized. It sounds like they maybe crammed a little bit for a test and then you got that sucker back and it was a 92 instead of an 86. And you're like, Oh yeah, this 100%. is hundred percent. This yeah. is awesome. <laughs> I don't know how we did this, but we did it. No, that's so true. Cause you don't, I mean, you don't even know the, the answers. You don't, you don't even know the questions yet. Cause you don't know who the hell was actually in the portal. And for them, I think some guys got in and they just had some natural connections. I mean, Aishimi Young is a prime example. Coleman and Bentley with Joyner a little bit. Evans, we obviously recruited him very hard. Um, so there was a, just an easy one there. And there was other connections with Evan and, and Kiffin. And But you have to get them. You know, even if they come out there, you have to kind of close on them. And I think they've done just an insanely impressive job at that. Um, maybe the best in the country with, you know, LSU and USC obviously did incredibly well too. 
Um, but they don't, they didn't have to retool as much. <laughs> Maybe right. USC did, but Ole Miss, I mean, the amount that they've lost from just a production and, you know, star factor, you had, you can't just fill that one for one. You have to really get in there and get guys to replace Braylon Sanders, Ben Brown, Sam Williams, Corral. And they've done that and they've done, you know, even more than that because they've added guys that can impact and they've added guys who are depth. And it's, it's just been impressive. It's not um, what I expected them to be able to do. And, of course, the, the devil's advocate is they're going to have to do this every year now. Um, so, you know, you have to be successful at it every year. And, you know, to this point, there's no reason to say they can't because of how well they've done the first two. Uh, but it's it's definitely an interesting strategy and one they're probably going to use a lot, lot more of. And they're not done yet because, right. I mean, Deion Smith's coming. I mean, that's happening. It just whether he can, you know, pass first-year biology or not at LSU or if they let him pass it, <laughs> I, I don't know. But he's coming, and I, I would expect maybe four more. I don't know their roster numbers off the top of my head, but I, the way they sign high school kids, they've got to have some more room, probably five, six other spots to, to fill up. It's somewhere in that neighborhood for sure. I think you're right on with that. And I'm sure I've thrown this like, idea or theory at you before, but it's been a month or two since we've done a podcast. So I'll just reiterate it again. When talking about the portal and the way they've retooled it, there was a lot of angst about the way they closed with the high school kids during the December signing period. And that was well documented. And we talked a lot about that and maybe some organization stuff. And then Kiffin talking to high school kids. Whereas don't you feel the portal is a little more conducive to what Kiffin wants to do as like a recruiter. It feels like a more of a professional setting. He's talked about free agency a lot. I'm not saying it's an apples to apples comparison, but I imagine an NFL free agency, you're sitting down talking about, okay, money aside, but fit. Sure. You know, how you fit into a scheme and stuff like that. The contract aside, which is a big thing to throw aside versus like, I feel like that's a little more what you have in the portal with maybe a 20 year old kid or a 21 year old kid with a couple years left to play. Here's what we can do with you. Here's how you fit in versus, I mean, you've worked in this part of it, getting a kid on campus, telling them the greatest thing since sliced bread, they're all going to start from day one here. Let's get you off to the library. I feel like, the, you know, the living room aspect versus telling more of a grown up that, hey, this is how we can use you. This is how, you know, this is how you're going to fit. And can we get you to the league? I feel like that's more his style and that may be part of why he's having success with it. It feels like more plug and play free agency type. You're 100% correct. I remember we talked about uh, like his strengths to recruiting is always just laying out the plan in front of these kids and, and parents and decision makers, whoever they are, and just really showing them like, here's what I've done. Here's what we've done here. And here's what we're going to do with you in the future. We're going to talk football. We're going to talk you know, just fit. And then, you know, if this is for you, fantastic. I'm going to show you that I can do it any way you want me to do it, whether it's quarterbacks, you know, especially on the offensive side, because let's, let's not kid ourselves. Like that's really where he recruits and where, where he deals with, with players is on offense and defense is more of a, you know, a program wide deal. And he lets, he lets the assistant coaches and the, and the coordinators uh, handle a lot of the front end on that. Um, but offensively, especially, you know, the way they've done the portal, it's just perfect for him. He doesn't have to, you know, BS with all of these high school kids because that's what it is in the end of the day. It's just a lot of nonsense um, that you have to deal with. And it's just not where he ex you know, excels, you know. He's not bad in going into homes and stuff like that. He's good with parents. He's good with kids and parents that have energy and excitement and that like want to be there, happy to see him, that he's happy to see them. They've got some juice, but sometimes not a lot of high school kids are like that. Right. You know, some kids are very quiet. 
Some kids are full of it. You know, you just never know what you're going to get. But a lot of these portal guys, you know, they've been through this before. And yeah, they might come by and do their photo shoots because all these kids love that. But at the end of the day, they're look, they're, it's all about ball and about getting to the NFL and about a better fit than where they've been before. There's a reason why they left. Right. And he, he, he is much, much better suited to deal with and recruit those kinds of kids by his personality and by his, just his strengths as a coach and as a recruiter. Yeah, there's a, probably a larger picture story to be written about. Look, I don't think when Keith Carter brought that guy back from Boca, this is what he had in mind in terms of the one-time transfer. But Ole Miss really was fortuitous in the sense to have a guy like Kiffin who's going to kind of utilize the cutting edge makes him sound like he's some sort of mad scientist curing diseases or something. But yeah, that's a, that, that would be a stretch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, the, the, the new rules and to implement them on the forefront and it fit his strengths at the same time, Ole Miss has been fortunate in that regard because – Look, I don't want to make this like a state thing, but state does not utilize the portal in the same way that Ole Miss has. And, you know, you talk about the difference between Leach and Kiffin year one to year two. There's a lot of different ways you could go with it. Like, Ole Miss doesn't go 10-2 and two without, without the way they used the portal last year. I get it they had Corral, but look at some of the guys they got on defense from Jake Springer to Mark Robinson and so on. They, like, they're maybe 7-5, and 8-4 and four team without the portal, which you will compare that to when the two guys are hired. It's not all that different. Like, I guess just having a, a guy that's willing to utilize, you know, these new rules and kind of enter the Wild West or whatever and use that to his advantage is certainly something that Ole Miss is fortunate to have versus someone that's maybe a little bit – I mean, Leach is kind of the epitome of stuck in his ways, can be good or bad, but, like, the system sure. is the system. This is how we do stuff. I think Ole Miss got lucky uh, in that regard. Jumping around to a couple of his uh, couple of his press conference things, I don't know if we've talked since the whole uh, Jimbo Fisher NIL beef, but Kevin had to uh, rev that up a little bit. In his defense in this one, I think he got asked a question about NIL. I think it was about the kid from California who's rumored to have the $8 million deal from Tennessee, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, I saw stuff about that. Uh, yeah. You go. Whatever. So, the, <laughs> Kevin, sure. just give this answer, talk about how he's sure. talked a lot about NIL. So, you know, I guess I got called a clown before. He smirks again, which is just the funniest thing ever. But I think people resonate with Kiffin in this sense that he's more real about NIL. Like, I thought he laid it out perfectly. I'll just read the part of the quote where NIL – yeah, so, you know, I guess I got called a clown before for saying how it is. NIL has a lot to do with where players go. And to not think that is crazy. It would literally be like being a head coach in the NFL, signing a great free agent class of guys, going out and getting these great players and coming up here and saying the contracts had nothing to do with the players came for it. obviously this is why they came here like I think that resonates more than the whole Jimbo Fisher stick just because Kiffin is being as honest as he can be in a frontward outward facing city where Jimbo Fisher is like there is no 30 million dollar fund it's like I get it man you can't say that but can you can you be less can you can you cut it with the whole this is the greatest university in the world thing like no one's accusing you of doing anything illegal I think the Kiffin side resonates more with people because he's not just acting like the audience is an idiot I, I thought his comments today were a lot, you know, one, funnier, and two, made a lot more sense than his past comments about NIL. Some of his past comments, you know, I think they're all true and right, but it kind of comes off as a little, you know, poor little old lane at Ole Miss sometimes. It, it gets, you know, after the third or fourth time you hear it, it's kind of like, okay, like we, we get it. Like, you know, Ole Miss has to step up, up with NIL. You know, you're looking at the big picture and all that. But today – what was just perfect because, you know, you said, why can't Jimbo just say that they had a $30 million fund? Why, why can't he? 
I never understood why in that press conference he was like shying away from the fact that they have a shit ton of money and that they're willing to spend it on these players. Like if I was him, I would go, yeah, you know, this is how we did it. We have awesome NIL setups and these kids are getting paid by the year for four years. And it's a great deal. Like come here, come to Texas A&M. Um, he didn't do that. He went all coach speak nonsense talking about the, you know, the bro Bible story or whatever that was. And Kiffin was like, like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we being so fake, so ridiculous? We all know that this is what happened. Um, you know, the players know, like, we're talking, we're probably recruiting the same players. We know what the deal is. Like, to, don't, don't, you know, BS us in front of the media and then take shots at me just because I'm telling the truth. And that's all he said today was, you know, of course these kids are getting paid and they're probably going to go to where the, they get paid the most. They're not going to A&M because they just can't wait, wait to wear the class ring for the rest of their life, you know, you know, same with the yell leaders and all that stuff. You know, they're going there because they're getting a ton of money to do it. And good for A&M. Like, you can't fault them. That it's, that's part of the deal now. And they've done it at a level that's better than literally everyone else in the country. I, if I was, I would just own it. But when you don't own it, you sound hypocritical. And that's how you make enemies. And that's how you get all these blue check marks writing articles about you when, when you're fake and you're not, you know, owning up to what you're doing. And Kiffin is basically saying, yeah, that, that's how it is these days. And that's, you know, I would love to be able to be the one doing that on that side, but no reason not to just say it how it is. You're definitely right on that sense. And so I had Borky on right after that happened. And like, we had a partially a theory to where like, these guys are such trained, like so trained to lie. And I don't even mean that in, like a malicious sense that the idea that they can start talking about this out in the open now is not fully registered in their brains. And look, I get it. I don't think Jimbo Fisher at that time was prepared to articulately kind of embrace it, but do it legally. Right. Because you still technically have the thing of like, you can't have NIL deals in place where the kids are still being recruited. And given the entire PR strategy of their response to Kiffin's comments, he's probably not dealing with the greatest PR guy with the Ross Bjork athletic department. I would say that's probably a pretty safe bet. So he, in his defense, he was probably not completely prepared to kind of embrace it carefully. But to your point, why do the whole, this is the greatest university in the world thing? Why not just expect, yeah, when guys get here, we have opportunities that other schools can't. Because you mentioned the Kiffin part of it and kind of him in the past doing the poor little Ole Miss thing. I think you're right in that sense. I think it's rooted in frustration. Is in terms of getting organized for NIL, to Ole Miss's credit, and honestly, to my personal surprise, they've been more out in front of getting organized for it than I thought a typical Ole Miss run operation would be. At the end of the day, though, they just don't have as deep a pockets as a place like A&M. And that's what's going to be interesting about the future of college football because you know who also doesn't have a deep of pockets from an alumni base? Like in Auburn. Like, they're not a have-not in the sport by any means, but they don't have A&M alumni pockets, and that's the fascinating part. I think that's part of the frustration with Kiffin, too. Yeah, I think a really important comment he said today, and he said this in a staff meeting when all this was going on when I was there, and all the coaches agree, and I think you see on Twitter that, like, people don't think that this is true and this is why they're complaining, but all the coaches are in the same boat with they are happy that these players are getting paid. No coach is sitting there across the country, I would hope. What about Dabo? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> that's a that's a different that's a different one all earlier <laughs> now up there at Clemson. Um, but I remember him saying specifically, he's like, I he's like, I'm 
we're great with these kids getting paid, but I just don't know how the hell they're going to do it. It's like, you know, whenever Bernie's out there like saying, let's give all college away for free. It's like, okay, Bernie, like that would be great. No one necessarily disagrees that on a fundamental basis, but how the hell are you going to do it? (laughs) You know, how are you going to pay for it? I think that's been Kiffin's biggest issue. It's not that this is happening. It's not these kids are getting paid. You know, it's just the way that it's going right now, it's just all over the place. You know, there's no control from the, the staff's point of view, but they also, it's also a kind of like a weird, you know, double-edged sword because they don't want the control that they want to coach football. And I, we might get into this later, but it's, I think it's the real reason why all these guys are leaving college football is because they're so tired already from recruiting all year long. And then now they have to deal with this. It's just not what they signed up for. And I think that's been his frustration is that, God, I've got to do all this stuff. And, yes, they get paid millions of dollars to figure it out. So there's not too much sympathy, but I do get it from his standpoint. It's like we want these kids to get paid. That's great. But we don't know how to do it. We, by the rules, technically cannot help do it. So we're just kind of sitting here just begging and pleading for Ole Miss, the athletic administration, and then just boosters to figure it out for us. And that's just not a healthy um, environment for these kids, for the coaches, for the administration. It's just a lot of not sketchy, but it's just it's a lot to deal with. And I don't think these college coaches love it. I think they're tired of it, but I don't think that they're tired of the kids getting paid. They're tired of having to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's completely unregulated. Like it's look, whatever your political financial, whatever views are, I think most people can agree that like some form of regulation in whatever sector or like whatever subject you're talking about is probably good because when something's completely unregulated, it generally just turns into a shit show. You know, check back here for more fortune cookie type slogans later. But like when you have something that's completely unregulated, fewer people succeed and more people end up getting kind of screwed over and there's more corruption, whatever you want to make of that, just as a general rule. And so I think coaches, like you mentioned, they're control freaks by nature, but like, like you said, they want to coach football. And then on top of it, it's like, there's no actual structure to any of this. And we, Porky and I've hit on this a ton about like the, you know, whether you have a transfer window, of course they can't cap it because at the end of the day, you're telling rich donors to do with their money. But the fact that no one knows and it's so completely unregulated, I think is one frustrating and two creates just a ridiculously unlevel playing field. How the future of that shakes out will, you know, remains to be seen. And that's a conversation that could go in a bazillion different ways. We can get back to spring in a second. I think what you brought up a second ago was fascinating because I don't think we hadn't done a pod since the Matt Luke thing where, that guy won a national title. He's still getting paid a decent amount from Ole Miss. And he just kind of looked around and was like, I got youngish kids. I'm good. I don't need this. And it, I saw, you know, some people, I won't say bristled at the notion that he just walked away free of scandal or disagreement with Kirby or whatever. But he was one of the first ones where people were like, what do you mean he just walked away? Like, I guess the more common rise, dude, just going to the NFL. But the point that you hit on is absolutely true. You're seeing it. It, how many college guys have you seen this offseason that get any sort of halfway decent opportunity in the NFL and they're like, boom, I'm out of here? I, I, it's it's got to be exhausting. Oh. You know, there's already – they say recruiting's year-round. Couldn't it – like, this kind of makes recruiting year-round in the most literal possible sense. I, I get it. I get these guys are well-paid. But I, as someone who's never worked in that industry but kind of knows generally how it works, that's got to be exhausting because you're not only recruiting kids year-round, your recruiting gets to stay on your own roster, aren't you? Like, it, it just seems a 12-month-of-the-year grind. And if I had could go to the NFL 
to where I'm a slave for it for six, seven months, but get four months of an off season. I'm like, sign me up for that. Cause this sounds terrible. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I preface this, you know, you said it too. These guys are incredibly yeah, well, bad for them, but so I don't feel bad necessarily, but I think the sport is so I'm more concerned about, you know, the quality of not the quality of the sport, but just the way it's going. These guys, none of these guys want to be in, in college. I mean, you saw Ole Miss staff-wise, you know, Chris Kiffin came down to coach with his brother, leaving a great gig with the Browns to come be the co-defensive quarter defensive line coach. And you can – anything can be said about how that all turned out with him coming and leaving. My guess is he had three or four phone calls with I'm some – right I was going to ask the same thing. Realized, hell no. I, I already remember how much I hated this, no matter how good I was at it. Absolutely not. Get me back to Cleveland with Miles Garrett and some adults um, with a lot more free time and probably just as good of pay. And I'll, uh, I'll see you there. You know, that that's, I can probably, it's probably what happened. Um, and then in the Matt Luke sense, I mean, I think you're going to see a ton more of that. Um, yes. Matt Luke has been paid handsomely through his career, his buyout at Ole Miss. He is going to be fine for the rest of his life, um, but he's young. <laughs> he may look, a little bit older, but he is not old. I do not think he is 50 yet. He is like probably in his mid 40s. And he's like 44. Something like that. I think that sounds about right. And he's been he's been in the game for a long time. And I can guarantee you there was no controversy at all. He was doing a hell of a job at Georgia. Um, and he was probably more comfortable at Georgia just being the offensive line coach, associate head coach, you know, won a national championship. But his kids are getting that age where it's like I have a 365 day a year job and it's not just any job it's as stressful and competitive as a job that you will find anywhere and why why am I still doing this why am I dealing with all this NIL stuff with these kids why am I recruiting these kids 24 7 you know I, I signed up and did this job just to coach ball and I don't get to do like any of that anymore it is all just peripheral kind of outside the box stuff and it's all recruiting. And then I get my fall where I'm coaching ball, but then in the fall, you know, you're in the office the entire time and maybe doing more of what you wanted to do in the first place, but that's way less time you get to see your family and everything. Whereas the NFL, I mean, yeah, you're a practice, but it's not the same. You know, these guys, it's a totally different deal in terms of what your schedule is like throughout the, the football season. You know, it's more elongated. There's 17 games. You have bye weeks. And obviously you have that in college too, but your bye week isn't a bye week in college. You're not going anywhere. You know, you're, you're still you're going in the recruiting. Same. Yeah, you're going recruiting probably that weekend. Um, I, I, I think I saw that like the a Memphis coach went to the Rams and uh, the Rams were like interviewing – you know, Cortez Hankton that just got to LSU. They were interviewing all these college guys. I'm like, what is going on here? And it's probably because they never got the opportunity to. But now they can if they want that kind of guy because they know that the quality of life, the pay, people don't realize that the pay is, is so much better in the NFL. They just don't have to necessarily show it all the time unless you're the Panthers and want to show off how much you paid Matt Rule if you're David Tepper. But you don't have to show it. But those guys, they get paid a ton of money, way more than college coaches get paid. And you get a better quality of life. And I think you're going to see it this offseason as much as anything. Um, th these guys don't want to be in college anymore. 
they just don't. That they they were going to find a reason to be in the NFL. Unless you're a head coach or a coordinator, then you know that's a different deal. But even then, it's like, man, I mean, the Kentucky guy went back to the Rams. He was yeah. a coordinator getting paid probably very well at Kentucky and at a really good program where he was doing a lot of really good stuff for them. And the second the Rams called, he's like, Yeah, sorry, I'm gone. I know it's March. You know, see ya. That's that's just what it is. Um, and it's just kind of a, a, a dynamic that's I've not seen in the three or four years I worked there where this many NFL gigs have been filled by college. I mean, the Saints hired Tennessee's wide receiver coach. I think he was like a receiver for Auburn like 10 years ago, or not even 10 years ago. I mean, just a young guy getting an NFL position job out of being out of college. You just don't see that that, many, that often. It's, it's a whole different deal. And I really do think it's just the grind is just getting just way, 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 way too much. Well, like the so much like this has changed the sport so much in the sense that like I thought the greatest irony was I remember the week of what used to be well it still is technically the February signing day which used to be when we made this reference for when you know and we were in school it was like a national holiday I know for all but basically a complete fact during that week most of the Ole Miss staff and I know a couple other SEC staffs they were all on vacation they took their vacation during like what used to be the big February signing period because like. You know, Jim Harbaugh interviewed with the Vikings on yeah, time. Like, <laughs> no one schedule is so yeah. inverted. What used to be the peak recruiting, like Mecca and build up to all this, is now one of the very, very few finite times they can take vacation. And it's just literally mostly because most of these kids don't sign there anymore. It's not intended to be a vacation offseason spot. It's just literally where they can catch a break sometimes. Yeah, you just don't have to be there anymore. And like yeah. they used to have the like the overarching press conference. Well, you guess what? You can do that press conference from anywhere. <laughs> you just zoom day early. Yeah, exactly. And he did that on purpose, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's just, it's just so much. And it, I get it. They get paid. They have to figure it out. But guess what? They can get paid going to the NFL instead and not to deal with all this. It's wild, and it's it's a trend we're going to see. Chris Peterson was kind of ahead of his time. Remember when at Washington, and there may have been some other factors there, but in like 2017 or so, he was just like, I'm out. Like, I'm kind of done with this. Um, yeah. And he cited like dealing with kids, and that was just a fraction of what they're dealing with now. It's a it's a fascinating deal. Bringing it uh, back to spring just a little bit, through Kiffin's press conference, I think we hit most of it. He did have a very interesting quote where he was talking about the Sugar Bowl, even though he wasn't at, asked about the Sugar Bowl, talking about like what an embarrassing offensive performance it was. How much of that do you think was getting out in front of what was a pretty lethargic performance, even though Matt Corral went down, and how much of it was a little bit of a uh, – Hot shot at Mr. Levy. I know that was more of an arranged marriage. And I'm, look, this is not going to turn into like a TMZ type deal, but it, it was weird because the question wasn't necessarily about that. And he was like, yeah, we were terrible offensively then. I just want to remind you guys. It's like, okay, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really know what to make of that. Um, it was interesting to say the least. It was definitely interesting. Uh, I have my theories. Um, I think your your quote on arranged marriage between Le- Levy and Kiffin, and that's the second year. That's, that's definitely what it was. Um, I think it's just really as simple as, as two guys that are, you know, they're competitive. Yeah. They do things a different way, a completely different way. Um, and, you know, once that's over, you know, you can kind of like realize, okay, well, maybe, you know, we didn't actually like each other <laughs> at all. Right. Um and I'm not saying that's the case, but they, they're just different. They, they, they go about the way they schedule things differently, the way they coach football differently. Their offensive scheme is different just from a standpoint of how they do it. Um, 
And I don't know why he did that. I don't know why it was necessary necessarily because your first round quarterback went down and a guy that's like not played at all came in against a defense that was really, really, really good. Um, but I mean, is he wrong? No, I don't think it was a great offensive game, but why he had to bring it up, like didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And, you know, I'm on here as a noted uh, fan and, you know, semi friend of Levy. So I, I get why some people like love to see that because he left for Oklahoma. Um, it's just kind of weird whenever you're like when Levy left, you're like, you know, yeah, this is what happens when you have success. Like people leave and that, that's part of it. And then come back around and take like a completely out of the blue shot. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, He's a professional shifter. He just loves stirring the pot sometimes. Exactly. You know, it honestly, it may like, he might be just laughing like after the press conference, like, oh, like Levy's going to see that and he's going to just freak out, which is very possible. Just the, yeah. that's the way Lane is. So I'm not putting too much into it. It, it was a little weird. Um, I think he is right, though, that like it was the last game of the season of a really good season after talking about being 10 and 2. And it's like kind of a, a sad, a poor taste in your mouth. So I get kind of what he's getting at. Um, but it just definitely came off as more of a, a shot at, at Levy than anything. Yeah, because the question was, was it by any stretch? How like how disappointed were you? Not. <laughs> made it weirder. The uh, that's probably as good a transition as any into the quarterback aspect of this. So Jackson Dart on campus. Um, you've got uh, Luke Altmaier there, and this has been one of the more interesting. It's not even a storyline yet because they haven't really gotten it started. But how do you view this as someone who knew Luke Altmaier as a prospect? And I know we've done your Dart your dart, I don't want to say take, your dart evaluation because you remember him from being in the recruiting game during that sense. How much of a uh, competition do you view it as? Like, I know it's an open competition. They're going to give both the guys the chance to win it. But, like, in terms of how you weight this, in your mind, how do you view this? As a formality. Really? Okay. Guys, you go through it and you compete. And they'll let them compete. And if out of nowhere Luke really, you know, come – not out of nowhere – if Luke comes out and is clearly the best player, they will play Luke Altmaier day one. Um, but I just don't think they brought Jackson Dart in to not be the starter. Um, I think they anticipate him winning that battle. Um, and that is the battle between Luke and, and Dart, despite what I'm sure will be said. Like, that, that's that, – it's those two. Um, don't don't yeah, make they, <laughs> don't, don't well, Bingo had possible. a press conference later after him and goes, you know, either one of the two after Kiffin said all three. Yeah, I get what he's trying to do, but you're right. A hundred percent. Yeah, and that and that's you know that's what you have to say. But um, I just it, that's just kind of how this thing is. I mean, Jaden, like it's kind of the same thing. LSU is going to see. They're like, okay, you know, we got a battle between Brennan and Howard, and and now Jaden Daniels comes in. Like, no, you didn't bring Jaden Daniels in in the spring to not be the starter. Um, it's like in the NFL. It's like okay, we brought in this rookie, um, but we got this you know veteran guy. Like, no, no, no. You didn't draft the guy in the first round not to be the starter. That yeah, that's the good. Matt Flynn Russell Wilson thing. Do you remember how that happened? They gave Flynn all that money, and it was like Flynn's gonna be the starter. But then all of a sudden, I guess he was really really bad, and it's like, who the hell is this Russell Wilson kid? What do you mean he's starting week one? Yes, that happens. That does happen. Yes, sure. it's a perfect example of like what could be the opposite of this. It's like okay, Luke is actually starting because he just killed it, and you just cannot you physically cannot keep him off the field. Um, is that a possibility? Of course it is. Uh, do I anticipate that? Absolutely not. No. And it's not because Luke isn't a competent SEC quarterback and not a good football player. I just think Jackson Dart really has the ability to 
elevate the entire team. He's got a shot to be really, really, really good. I talked to the a guy that trained him in high school, and I think still trains him out on the West Coast. Um, I, I, the name of the place escapes me now, but he was talking about, you know, I kind of went into it with, okay, this kid's got a good arm. He played a little bit injured. He's not as mobile. But that guy that I talked to that day was like, actually, that couldn't be further from the case. That kid had a torn meniscus that cost him six weeks. He's actually his best when he's moving around and kind of moving out of structure. And I found that fascinating because – you know, while you might not see from the little sample size that you have on like game tape or highlights or whatever the hell you want to call it, him moving around a ton, sounds like this kid's pretty mobile. And, you know, that's two pretty mobile quarterbacks in a row for Kiffin. And I just found that fascinating because I didn't go in to that, call it an interview, whatever. I was mainly just talking to the guy thinking that like Dart was another you know, dual threat, whatever you want to call it. But it sounds like that's kind of the case. It sounds like he's at his best when he's out of structure. Do you remember that from the recruiting process? At all? Yeah, but yeah I, I don't disagree with that. But that doesn't mean that he's, you know, like an excellent runner. Like he really scares you running the ball. That means he's effective as a runner. Um, but what, what he's really talking about is just outside of the pocket, making things happen, you know, on the fly, running and throwing the ball at different arm angles. Not necessarily, you know, running out there like Josh Allen and, you know. You know being mobile and a runner not people. being the same thing? The, that kinda... Yeah, kind of completely different. Or not completely different, but there's difference between, you know, being a, a, an effective and, like, you know, efficient runner. You know, Corral, I would say, was more effective than I even thought, but he's really more of an efficient runner. Like, you're not going for 20 or 15. You know, you, you can run it and be um, incredibly efficient and effective, but – he's not necessarily somebody that you're even though we ran them more more than he should you probably aren't game planning for Matt Corral running the ball I know that sounds crazy after seeing him this year but it's not like a guy like Willis or a guy like Lamar Jackson or a guy like Deshaun Watson where it's like when he's running the ball it's like a problem like you have to be ready for it um, I think Dart can do that, but it's not something that's like super, super scaring you. But his ability to make plays around the pocket, outside of the pocket, throwing the ball downfield, you know, keeping his head downfield and vision and whatnot, it's impressive. He, and he's got a hell of an arm. Um, he's got a weird arm angle. He, he really kind of loops it, but it's quick. Um, but he's, he's got a chance to be really, really good. And next to him in the backfield, we talked about earlier Ole Miss retooling their backfield a bit. We've talked a lot about Zach Evans, but they did add another guy in Ulysses Bennett. Do you know – do you remember or know anything about this kid? I had never really, like, even heard of him. And then I was like, oh, he's a 900-yard guy for a pretty good SMU team last year. That one yeah. kind of came out of nowhere. Did not remember him in high school. But I do remember hearing about him last year. Um, only because his name is Ulysses Bentley the fifth. But they get that kid a KA bit, huh? I mean, that is – He had no problem during rush. Absolutely none. They might be shocked when he walks in, but <laughs> he, 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 uh, he, would, he would have no issues. Um, I, I don't know anything about the kid. I just remember him having an awesome name. I, I, I watched some highlights on Twitter that you see, you know, he's coming to Ole Miss. Looks like a, like effective, you know, catcher out of the backfield, pretty shifty, kind of a – a different back than, than Evans is, which is important. You can't just have three of the same guy, and they definitely don't have that. They've got, you know, three or four, like, very different running backs, um, which is good. Um, but I, I'm happy they got him because I think that what they really needed another guy in that room. Um, yeah, I love Control Bullock, but he hasn't proven it yet. And then Judkins, I love him too, but he's a true freshman, and you don't know how that's going to translate. So you really need another guy that's taking reps, and he was incredibly effective at SMU. Really important to get him. 
you led me exactly where I was going to go, and you may have just answered it partially there, but I was going to bring up Kentro Bullock because that was a guy in 2020 who I, won't, I, I don't have his carry total up, but, like, he played enough to where I think most fans remember. It's kind of like when he didn't play a lot last year. It's like, hey, what about that kid? What happened to that kid? He just kind of got buried. You've seen this in the past. I mean, I remember in 20 – I think it was 18 when Isaiah Woolard kind of played out of necessity after Scotty Phillips got hurt, and then all of a sudden, yeah. I think – does he have – I don't it doesn't matter if Isaiah Woolard has eligibility left, but two years I think later, he does. I think what he the does. hell happened to this kid? Somehow. Yeah, I don't even – I think they may have moved positions with him. But anyway, it doesn't matter. You see guys get buried on the depth chart running back-wise. What do you see in, like, Bullock as a prospect? And do you think – I know they replaced him with – they replaced the running back room with the five-star and important kid in Bennett. But do you give – Bullock a decent chance to be the third guy instead of the fourth guy that was kind of the odd man out because it seems like I know Kiffin likes to use different running backs and it's kind of a week-to-week thing but it seems very much more difficult to use four guys versus three it's kind of hard to use three some nights you saw that last year right I remember one of the things we talked about throughout the year was like let's try to figure out why they did the carries dispersal the way they did this week but you can use three four feels like a crowd do you give him a chance to be that third guy I, w- I would. Um, I-, I think physically he's been he's been in this system for I guess two years now. Uh, I think he's going to be ready to play. Um, I think it just really depends on you know how has he gotten through spring, how is he looking in fall, is he understanding what they're doing, um, new system, new coaches, all that. So you get new relationships. You know, Kevin Smith really liked Henry Parrish for obvious reasons. He recruited him immediately and he played him a lot. Um, he liked Ely a lot because that's kind of like the way that he envisioned running backs. And, you know, Snoop, I think it got to a point where it's like we can't not play this guy. So the, yeah. the carriers were all over the place. So now you've got the new running backs coach. He's going to have new relationships with these players. And it'll be interesting to see, like, what that carry count looks like this year with these new guys coming in. Um, I do think Bullock will end up being the third guy. Um, but guess what? If Judkins comes out of nowhere, not really out of nowhere, but comes out and just really shows out, then then he's going to be a third guy. So it's just that I've always said, like, coaches do not play a whole lot of favorites. If you're the better player, you're going to be on the field, and that just will be up to Bullock. Building on top of that, Kiffin used it pretty, like, differently throughout the game. There was no bell cow last year, and I know that's kind of a a, a concept of the past in just football in general, but – I think you do look at the running back room this year, and Ely was a different case. I know he's a five-star recruit, but given what they had shown as college players so far, I don't think you would say Jaron Ely was miles better than Snoop Connor and Henry Paris. He was just kind of different, had a little bit maybe more of like a burst home run hitting aspect. From a talent standpoint, it does feel like um, Zach Evans is infinitely more talented than a lot than the other guys kind of in the mix here. Do you envision a scenario, and I doubt we'll see this in spring, but I'm just curious, do you envision a scenario where he gets maybe like 65% of the carries and the other dudes disperse the other 35? I guess what I'm saying, do you think they go with one guy more in Evans this year because of who he is? Oh, I think they would like to do that if he stays healthy and everything. I think they would like to have him be the guy for this offense. But just with the way running backs are used, college and NFL, you just don't have – there's no Derrick Henrys anymore. You know, Najee Harris is – those guys just don't – it's not the same. Um, they run a really fast offense with a ton of plays. Like, you can't expect Zach Evans to be out there if the offense runs 95 plays in a game to be on, you know, 75 of them. That's that's an insane snap count for a running back, especially, you know, passing and running and, you know, running routes. You know, it, it's just – it's a lot. Um, 
And I think they needed to bring in a guy like Bentley to take, you know, those 10, 12, 15 snaps a game, give Evans, you know, the other 20, 25, and then, yeah, sprinkle in some depth guys, depending on how the game's going and what the game plan is. Uh, I think they're going to want to go to Evans more because, yes, he is the best back on this. He might be the best player on this team. Um, so you're going to want him on the field as much as possible, but you're not going to, you're not going to just wear him out. That's not going to be what they do. It's a long season, you know, running backs take a ton of hits. So you're going to have it spread out, but I think he's going to be the guy. Looking elsewhere, there's a couple more things I want to hit on offense that we'll get to a couple of defensive things real quick. They bring in Mason Brooks from Western Kentucky and that pretty much immediately signified the fact that Nick Broker is going to move inside I can't say – so I'm, I'm admittedly not an offensive line play savant, but, like, when they brought in Brooks and I immediately kind of heard, like, well, this means Broker's moving inside. I don't want to say I was, like, stunned by any means, but I was like, oh, that's an interesting concept. What do you think went into that? Like, it sounds like Broker is more professionally conducive – like, to his professional career, it's more conducive that he plays guard. Why is that, and what is the importance of getting a guy like Mason Brooks? Yeah, you, you, they needed tackle bodies. Um, that's something they lacked last year. Um, they, they moved and shaked a few people and tried them out, but they needed more tackle bodies, whether they were even starters or not. I mean, I know they were going after a few other guys that were tackles. Like, they might not even start, but you just need to have them for depth purposes because last year you saw one injury or two injury on the offensive line. It, it really changed that entire, that entire group. Um, my guess on why Broker is moving inside is because it's just better for the team. I know Kiffin said it's better for Broker for the next level of the NFL, and I think there is like 50% truth to that, and that's it's a good recruiting answer, kind of like a, you know, we're going to let our kids play what they're going to play in the NFL. Um, I think it's also just better for them fit-wise. Brooks, they probably like him at tackle. He's probably better fit at tackle. Broker is probably doesn't have the length and the uh, – really just the size and length to play tackle in the NFL. And I think he's probably better suited for guard. Um, I think he's just really better for the team, better fit for the five to get their best five out there. And I don't even know what that five is going to be. You know, they've got some young guys that still have a chance to, to develop the way they thought they would out of high school, uh, like Melton and Cedric nicely. And the other kid they got at the end from Texas, whose name escapes me at this moment. Um, my guess is that's just getting their best five out there meant we needed Brooks out there playing left tackle and we need broker at guard. Yeah, that's going to be something that's interesting to monitor, not only that, but just from like a depth standpoint. And I think that's an important piece that Ole Miss grabbed. And certainly from the way you kind of heard people, or I would say around the situation vaguely, once they got him, they're like, this is a big deal, like that we needed this. You mentioned it, just yeah. tackle bodies. Like that helps a lot. Going outside a bit to receiver. That, to me, in terms of this offense, is going to be the most fascinating, perhaps the most fascinating part. Because I, you hit on it earlier when you were talking about uh, – when you were talking about um, – I lost my train of thought there for a second. Oh, Matt Corral not necessarily being like a runner you have to game plan for. Some of the 30-carry deal was kind of out of necessity because they had his injuries piled up on the wide receiver part of it. Like, they just didn't have a lot of dudes they could trust to get open. And, like, ideally, I don't think they want to go into another year – with that being the case, they're relying on a couple transfers just as you see it right now. How do you view this wide receiver room with what they added versus what they have coming back? Like, do you think they'll be better or worse next year, I guess, to put that in a simplistic question? I, that's a great question. And I, it's hard to say because I don't know how these young guys are progressing. You know, there was the whole Braylon Brown thing last year. It's like this guy looks like a stud, then he 
kind of messed up his hamstring during fall camp and like just does not play the entire season. Um, and then now you've got these guys coming in. You've got Watkins coming in, who I think is going to be a really good player for them. You've got Mingo back. Um, you've got some other guys that have had snaps, like J.J. Henry played a little bit last year. You've got Trigg, who is going to be a wide receiver, tight end, kind of combo deal. I think there's much more depth there. You know, they, they, had, they had guys out there playing last year, you know, like that they did not want playing. And now you lose Drummond and Sanders, which are two just, you know, I don't know if they're going to be really draft guys, but they're just really good college wide receivers, you know, and they had some health issues, obviously, but just when they're on the field, they're reliable, they know what they're doing, and they're really effective. And now you're going to have guys who may have a higher upside, um, but you just don't know what their reliability is going to be. And that's kind of, at the end of the day, that's really what wide receiver play is, especially with the system they're going to be running. It's not you know, beat your guy 1v1. It's just you're open. You just got to be reliable. You got to be on the field. You got to make catches. And that's just not exactly what they were doing last year with the exception of really Drummond. You know, everyone else was either hurt or inconsistent or not playing up to the, the standard they needed to, which made Corral become the runner that he was, like you said, out of necessity, not out of what they wanted to do. Um, so I do think they're going to be better at that position. I think once they add Deion Smith, which – you know, my understanding is that's just a formality at this point. I think he's a real game breaker, and I don't know if I'm forgetting anybody. I don't think I am, unless there's a transfer I can't remember that I'm not bringing up. I don't have the wrong concern. Um, but yeah, they they have a chance to be a lot better and a lot more depth. Yeah, so they added the the kid from Louisville, and then you've got Jalen Knox who sat out last year from. Oh yeah, I know nothing about him. Yes, I, I know everyone's just wants to believe that he's like the second coming of some awesome old Miss wide receiver. I know absolutely nothing about Knox. It and was I'm something that was under the radar last year. And then, you know, in the day and age of like the one time penalty free transfer, I don't, you know, everything so happened so fast in college football. I don't remember if that was pre or post that. I don't remember what the deal was. Yeah, that's totally, I know he was, he came in bef- like after I left. So it was like after the five and five year. And he was had like some pending criminal issues, I think. Okay. But ended up not ended up not being like that big of a deal, uh, which I know is weird to say, but I really don't think it was that big of a deal. But like, couldn't qualify academically, so didn't get to use his one time transfer. Um, was a really effective player at Missouri, from what I remember, stats wise. But I, I just do not know what his status is. He might be just killing it for all I know, and he's the the secret sauce weapon they're going to use this year. But I can't say anything about him. I've seen Watkins play. I know what he's like. I don't remember Knox. Yeah, right. No, I was just – I was that was kind of one I forgot as well. And, like, it, it, and nothing else, it's at least another body that's played SEC football, right, and has some experience. Yeah. Because, you know, you we talked about it last year. Like, these guys that they didn't live up to the, necessarily the standard that you would hope, and it kind of turned Corral into more of a runner – they didn't have a ton of game reps, and then once they got them, it just wasn't kind of happening. At least you have a guy that's armed with a few, you know, game reps or so when you get in there. So that helps a lot. And then, honestly, having the fully healthy Jonathan Mingo, I think, is something that's undervalued because Definitely. it was – it was he'd shown flashes in the past, and then really he got hurt before his season got started. I think he got hurt in the – right before the loss to Alabama, so whatever the game was that. And then he was definitely not fully healthy when he was able to come back. It was actually kind of an admirable deal for him to be able to return and give them something toward the end. So I think there's a chance there's deeper there. But would you say 
given that you think the offensive line is going to be okay, what they have with the running back room, the receiver is probably one of the most, maybe the most important piece of this offense to reach its ceiling. Like, I get it. Can, like, how much drop-off is there between whoever's throwing the ball from Matt Corral? You know, probably Jackson Dart. But it seems like the receiver is kind of the great unknown. If they're awesome at wide receiver, that changes what they are as an offense, maybe more so than any other position. I don't disagree with that, but I think tight end is interesting the, the, the position that really can elevate this offense. Um, you saw what they were able to do with Bryant at FAU. You know, Yaboa had a really good start to the 2020 season and just completely, I think the entire year last year, you know, as good as they were on offense in the gang, and of course injuries kind of hampered them towards the end, having literally no tight end to just kind of switch up the things that you were doing uh, really took away from just the full offense as, you know, just as a whole, their ability to do what they want to do. Um, I mean, the 2020 offensive team was stats wise and production wise, probably better than 2021, even though we won 10 games. <clears throat> and I think it's just because there's, they had more to do with Yaboa in there. So a little bit of uh who's my transfer that's always heard from ULL, Chase Rogers. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're effective, but now they, they just didn't have that last year. With Trigg, with a hypothetically healthy Hudson Wolf and a few other guys, I think that they're going to be able to add an extra component to the offense where if that is an effective deal for them, that the wide receiver position, as long as they're just doing what they need to do, I think the offense will be a ton better. It's a fascinating point, and, like, you're right, because a lot of these Kiffin offenses, particularly of late, have had good tight ends, and they just hadn't had that option. And so, like, Trigg being kind of the package deal and Hudson Wolf, whatever, I don't know what the kid's deal is. It seems like he's hurt a decent bit. Unfortunately, got some, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, some back issues. Like, at least they have a guy that can count on there that's pretty talented. And then, you know, between the mix of the transfers, what do you actually finally get from Dennis Jackson? They got a chance there. It sounds like the – the thing that could take this, I would say, ball-catching group throwing in the tight ends in there over the top would be the fact that Deion Smith shows up as well. That seems like a pretty big piece of this. Yeah, it, it, just a ginormous piece of this. He I, he didn't play a whole lot at LSU. Um, I think he was injured, and, you know, their wide receiver room is pretty deep. I don't know if you've seen that group. Yeah. Um, he, he's a special player. There's a reason why Kiffin – like, I've never really seen him. You know, I was only with him for a year. But he wanted Deion Smith more than any other recruit we were even talking about. Um, and I think if you saw his first few games at LSU, you understood why. Like, that kid is a special football player. He is, like – I don't want to say poor man's Devonta Smith because I don't even think that's fair to, to, to Deion. But he has that – he's that kind of guy. He's just a little skinnier build. But he is smooth. He is – just a super dynamic athlete. He's got real speed. He um, he's really, really, really good. And there, I mean, there's a reason why LSU did not want him to leave. And I think it's kind of become a deal where it's just get your grades and get out now with yeah. Kelly. Um, but yeah, adding him, hopefully eventually, however that works, really takes this receiver group just to kind of a different level. Before we get to the defensive side of it to wrap up, uh, Kiffin did have another just legendary HIPAA sighting when he was talking about, I believe it was the Caden Costa thing. Where apparently I, I think he's, I think it's a running joke now. I think he's yeah. so confused and tired of why people are asking about the kicker that he's like, you know what, I'm just going to say this funny HIPAA line, and then hopefully they'll realize I don't want you to ask me about the kicker. <laughs> it's like a headache he's just prolonging because look, I don't know if Kiffin, you know, before he got here. Oh, no, that was actually 20 – who was their kicker in 2020? 
Was it Luke Logan? Yeah, yeah it, was. He, it was. Yeah, he wasn't any good. So I hard, got, hard to forget. <laughs> that matters. <laughs> you know, they bring Land Gebhardt back. Shout out Jackson Academy. But like, clearly, it's something they concerned with. I can understand why he's got a million. Hell, what the hell is wrong with you, Jackson people, naming your children Land <laughs> Gebhardt and Kale Nation? I mean, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, your parents, that's some child abuse for those two kids. I think Kale Nation's from Madison Central, isn't he? I know you don't claim those people there, but Jesus Christ. I what have little room to because my parents gave me three names just to not call me Brian. You're not far off. Oh, I'm not like, taking you out. Yeah, no, exactly. But, like, I swear, I have this theory now that these – I think they just run around with, like, street names over there in Eastover, and they're like, oh, Land Street. Okay, Land – Gebhardt, boom, that's there's this kid's name. And I think that's how they come oh, up with names now. But some guy on the boards asked, I think somewhat seriously, is that a typo for Lane? And someone was like, no, it's Land. <laughs> it's absolutely. His name is Land. Ridiculous. Land, Kale, really one, one with the environment over there in Jackson. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to worry about that kid choosing. You don't have to worry about that kid making grades. Just upstanding young men over there. Let's hit the defensive side of the ball before we get to a little bit of soccer corner. A lot of new on the defensive side. They're replacing a decent bit on the defensive line. I want to start with linebacker, though. They add Troy Brown. Um, they add um, Kari Coleman, who I think will be kind of an edge guy. They do lose a decent bit from a defense that really came together. And, you know, you got to give Durkin a lot of credit for how this defense played last year. Down the stretch at ton. And, you know, there's a reason he was a sought-after commodity, even if, you know, quote-unquote baggage, whatever you want to call it. There's a reason that Jimbo Fisher really wanted him. How much of a – I don't even really know how to word this or go with this. Take this any direction you want, but with the amount of they lost and the amount of, you know, new they have in there, what chance do you give them to retain most of the production and success that they had in 2020? Um, I really think that they're going to be just fine. I think they've added so many DB bodies, which I, is always something I've thought. You know, everyone talks about defensive line. I really think DB is where they've had to get better depth and really just better players. And if we're just going to be honest with it, they've they've got that in spades. You know, they've added safeties, corners, you know, guys that can do both. Um, and I think that they've got such better depth now, and they're building it in an unorthodox way. But um, they're going to have to do it by committee without Sam Williams, without Chance Campbell. Um, I think Austin Keys coming back and being healthy will be huge. I think they're going to be just fine. Um, I think Partridge is going to have to adjust to calling the plays. Um, he was hands-on with the team. I don't know what it was like last year, but Durkin was really the guy calling the plays and kind of running the deal. And Partridge was helping with game planning and doing what you do as a co-defensive coordinator. Um, so that adjustment will be a real thing. That's very different. He's running the practices now, and he, he's been a part of doing that for multiple different teams. But, you know, you've got the the title now. It's a different deal. Um, there's a bunch of different coaches under him um, that he'll have to get used to working with in a practice setting, a game setting. So there will be adjustments from the coaching side. I think the player side, that they've done a really good job adding to this roster. Um, and it'll be a little bit by committee without a guy like Sam, but it, it'll be fine. Jared Ivey, they bring in from Georgia Tech. You mentioned they've added depth, but in just an unconventional way, and I'm just curious to see how a couple of these guys play out. I'll throw you a couple of names on the defensive line that have been in the program a couple of years, and if anyone sticks out in terms of giving a shot to, I don't want to say have a breakout. <laughs> <Being years>. <laughs> so cliched, but like just – being kind of maybe what they thought they would be. Brandon Mack, a guy we wrote about a ton in 2019 or 2020. I can't remember which one. Never really surfaced. 
Javon Clowney's another one. And yeah. Then I'll go Cedric Johnson. <laughs> no, that but that's already I, I feel like that's already a known commodity. We were on that last year. People don't realize people don't, still don't get it. Like he is. He is going to be the starter there. He is really, really good. And I mean, I saw a picture of him today. He looks bigger, you know, of course, bigger, faster, stronger, as always. Um, he he's really, really good. He he's gonna be a not household name because that's that'll be a little bit much, but he's going to be a really, really impactful, good player, playing a lot of snaps, and he's going to have a lot of sacks this year. Or he's going to be affecting the play. He's he's a really good football player. They had J.J. Pegues, and then you have him and Taiwan Malone kind of on the interior there, just as two guys that their name stuck out. What did you make of them getting Pegues? He was a dude that every time I asked anyone around Oxford, it's like, guy's freak athlete. I was like, well, he is. If I can get like, what what do you make of his chances of becoming a successful defensive tackle? Because obviously, recruited out of high school as a tight end, moves to defense. I believe last year at Auburn. Just what do you make of him as a prospect and his chances to be a guy that you're talking? We're talking about on this podcast in the fall as an interior defensive lineman contributor. I mean, when he was coming out of high school, I mean that kid was around the program more than anyone else, which I know people love to hear because he didn't get <laughs> enough at all. They do love that. Well, I mean, I've got a, a huge. I think we talked about this before where the kids around like that much, it becomes old and like ends up wanting to try something new. Sure. Now a bad strategy, I guess, but you can't say no to them showing up. Same with Brandon Turnage, um, a fun name on the board. I'm sure people love to hear about him. Um, I, we always thought he was, uh, had the chance to be an NFL defensive lineman just with his, his body type, his athletic ability, his hands length. Like he just was made to be a defensive lineman. And he wanted to play tight end, and he had some hilariously awesome blocks playing tight end at, at that size, and it was awesome to see, but just didn't make sense for him. And I think if his mindset's right, I think Joyner is, like, the perfect coach for him, a young guy, relatable, you know, a professional, a stud. I mean, Joyner's a, a really, really good at his job. Uh, if he can get J.J.'s mindset into playing defensive line, buying in completely – teaching him fundamentals and, you know, just simple things. I think he's got a chance to be a huge contributor next year. Um, I, I have expect and would like to see him do really well because I really, really like J.J. as a kid. He's probably the recruit I was around as much as anybody. Um, I'm hoping he's very successful, and I think he can be. Give me kind of your Marcus Joyner gushing spiel because I did – so I wrote a story on his wife a couple months ago or about a month or so ago – and I was going back doing some research. I say research on Joiner. I was really just kind of going down a rabbit hole. And a couple of things stuck out. One was a press conference Sam Williams had from October, where Sam Williams, a guy, I, you know, in this modern day and age of college media access, I won't say I spent a ton of time with him, but it was a guy I sat down with for an hour for a different story one time. And I felt like I got some insight on like how he handles media and like what he's like, surface level, what he's like. Not a guy that's just going to gush over anyone. Um, just because you asked him a question and asked you to give him a can answer. But he really went into a lot of detail about how much uh, Joyner had changed his mindset as a player and really gave him a lot of credit for his ascent last year. Yeah. And then another thing I went down was a video of Joyner who – I don't remember if he's a GA or whatever at Ohio State, but he just like – he's given one of those like practice pump-up speeches, but he has the entire room's attention. Even a man sitting back there who was the head coach of the program at the time at Urban Meyer to where like – Urban Meyer always has something to say, was just kind of mesmerized, like bobbing his head in the background as Joyner just saying a bunch of shit to fire some guys up. What What do you make of him? I feel like that's a superstar on this old Miss staff that maybe doesn't 
I, I hate to say don't get the credit because people I think people know he gets the job, but maybe he's not gotten the shine that uh, that he maybe deserves. So I I've never met Randall Joyner. Uh, I left I left the team right. before, he came on after before, the before he got there. But just from a recruiting standpoint, what they were doing at SMU, the players they were getting, and him getting like. 95% of the credit for it was just noticeable from my standpoint. It was impressive what they were doing at SMU. And he had that Dallas area. You know, he, he was handling a lot of those kids along with the uh, – they had another guy there. <clears throat> he was like a running back there that uh, – I can't think of his name. I think he already left to go to TCU. But those two were like really killing it at SMU. And then he comes here and just knowing who was there before and the way that the line played this year, it was just night and day. And especially with Sam Williams and what he was able to get out of him, he's just really impressive. Uh, you know, that always comes off as kind of a demeaning thing to say about, you know, a young African-American coach where, you know what I'm saying, but that's but not. Yeah, but I know what you're getting at. Cause like, like race part of it aside, there's some people when they talk, they're like very captivating and you pay attention and even just interviewing for 30 minutes, that story, not that I'm not paying attention to other interviews, but like you're very much hanging on to every word he's saying more. So some people just have that knack about them. It's just, they, they right. present themselves impressively. That could go man, woman, black, white, whatever. There's some of people course. like that. And he seems to have it. Yeah, just I, I think you know what I meant by that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and of course, you know, I knew people on the staff and you know, I'm talking to them like how are the new coaches and all that. And every single person's like Randall Joyner's the man. Like yeah. he he just gets it. And yeah, young superstar. He's done a really good job recruiting. And it's always so I've always said this recruiting is just like eighty-five percent effort and fifteen percent being, you know, that guy that could just get it done. And he does something that Honestly, the last year I was there with Kiffin, some of the assistants did not do, whereas he doesn't just recruit his position. He recruits his area as well as I've seen anybody. I mean, getting the guys from SMU and TCU, that's clearly Joyner. You know, kind of working on some of these Texas kids in this next class, it's clear that Joyner's kind of heading a lot of that up. And that's where it really shows you, like, okay, is this guy just going to be a position coach or is he going to be a coordinator and then a head coach because he gets it. And it's clear that he just gets it. It's a fascinating point. I never thought about like the recruiting the area versus the position. It's fun. Yeah, you said it. You, sorry, you, you set it up. However, you want to set it up. You know, some people will do the assistant coaches. You know, it's first your area, then your position. You know, and yeah. then ancillary or first position, then area. And I've always been. You have to recruit your area first because you know, if a position coach leaves, you need to have a backup. You know, if you're an area kid, you have your area coach and your position coach. Hopefully that player, that person is different. So you have multiple relationships on the staff. Um, I think area recruiting is just more effective. But sometimes you can say that and the coaches don't do it. You know, it's you could have that area and you kind of do your, your your bare minimum and then really focus on your position because that's what obviously you love and that's what you're more, you know, into. But when you've got a guy that does both at a really high level and has done it at multiple different levels, it's just clear that he's he's got it. Interesting. It's a moving like last thing I really had defensively because I think like the secondary they probably returned the most back there. But just from a to tie in the secondary and then a schematic question with Partridge, do you anticipate them being pre pretty schematically similar? And the reason I ask that is like a guy like Jake Springer was so important to that defense last year. Do you anticipate them playing in a similar fashion? Not necessarily that they have to replace a Springer with the guy as good or they're not going to be as good. I don't mean in that simplistic terms, but like he's a guy you think about that was a very good schematic fit there. It was very important. How do you anticipate them playing? Yeah, I think it'll, they'll try to be similar. 
Um, I think they got the kid from Iowa State where who knows what's going on with that. Um, That's where they got that defense from. That's where Kiffin kind of mentioned that last year, which, you know. Yes. So perfect fit there. Um, assuming all things are, are going okay there. Um, I, I think they're going to try to be very, very similar um, because they had a lot of success with that. Um, I do think they have much more depth on the defensive line, and you could see them go more four down traditionally. Um, but it's kind of a don't fix, you know, what you don't need to not – or whatever that saying is that I just completely screwed up. Um, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I think Kiffin really liked the way they played on defense. I think he likes the three down. Um, I know people had a, just a conniption whenever people would run the ball them, on them effectively. Um, but that was really just Alabama. And that's kind of, <laughs> you know, that's how it works there. Um, so I don't anticipate too much of a change, you know, schematically on that side. I think that this about covers it. We'll do a couple more check-ins, you know, throughout the spring, maybe something for the spring game. But uh, just kind of getting back on the field, football, just what they're looking at early 2022-wise. Now to the main course. It is the fastest-growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. We've got a lot to get to. I just pulled up the standings. Um, someone messaged me a while back and was like, hey, when you're about to pivot to Soccer Corner, I can actually hear you typing on the podcast, pulling up the standings. So, you know when those fingers start moving – toward the end of the pod that we're uh, we're pulling up the standings. The transfer window has happened. I, I won't I won't give you – we'll start just right right at the bread and butter of this. I won't say you're, you're, you called it, but you definitely called it. The transfer window or whatever it's called happened, and now Saudi Castle United is just like a freight train from hell coming up whatever the uh, Blades of Glory line, the ass of the competition. They're 14th. They're way out of relegation. Let's start there or take this anywhere you want to go. How is this different now that the transfer window has happened? Because they are way up. Well, it's it's weird because some teams, you know, do it completely differently. You know, a lot of teams, like, of course, United, they have a freaking interim head coach. They didn't buy a single player. And then you've got some teams where they really kind of restructure a lot of what they do. Um, the, the, the Saudis went and spent a ton of money. And they completely reshaped their team uh, from a starter standpoint. And they are won like four out of five games, I think. Um, now, they haven't played a lot of the top six sides, but they've, they've done what they needed to do. And they've pretty effectively beaten a lot of the teams that are in that relegation zone and kind of in the middle of the table. And they've, I mean, they're, they're free at last. You know, they're, they're, they're flying over there and they're doing just fine. Um, so, I mean, that's what can happen. You know, you'll see it a lot in the summer if you focus on it. Like, teams will completely change and, you know, for better or for worse. But that they are definitely the biggest winners of the transfer market uh, in the EPL. And like you mentioned, you knew that was going to be the case. They've actually surpassed Newcastle United since last time we spoke. I actually turned on a Brentford-Newcastle game mentioned the possibility of my allegiance is changing. I will stay with Brentford for now, but I don't know if those season tickets are getting renewed because every time we do this segment, they're further down in the standings. Brentford's stock is 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 rather low. Um, a lot of tin pot shit going on there. Not really sure what's up, but I hope they get it together. Yeah, what they're, they're going to be okay. They're, they're, eight, they're eight points clear. Um, barring a like literal disaster, I think they're going to be they're going to be in there for a second season, which is huge for a team like them. You get the extra money, the extra ability to buy more players. You know, they brought in Christian Erickson, who I think I might have texted you about this, but he was the player for Denmark who like almost died of a of a heart attack during they the collapse on the field, right? Yeah, yes, collapse on the field. He, I mean, he's an incredibly well-known name. He played for Tottenham. He, he's he's played for uh, Ajax and a bunch of really 
really big teams, Inter Milan, and he's come in and he's healthy and he's like really changed that team. They're they're going to be just fine. You're gonna be, you're going to be okay. <laughs> In all seriousness, I watched a few English Premier League games, particularly as football kind of fell off the slate, and we were in that basketball season that's not, you know, not college baseball. But honestly, the fact that the games are in the morning, I watched like a few of them. And what I didn't realize you could pick up from the broadcast is like, yes, I get the teams at the top, Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, whatever, um, like have better players and spend more money. But there's like huge effing deals on every single one of these teams. There's like international superstars on pretty much every one of these teams. Like there was like Watford or Everton or something. I was watching like a piece of one match and they were talking about this guy and like he had, like they showed like his resume and I was like, damn, this guy's done a lot in soccer. And like, I've never even heard of this team. I guess I didn't realize that like, there's still great players on these bad teams. It's this difference. They don't have very many of them. Is that kind of fair? Some of those dudes maybe chase the money or they're slightly past their prime. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of both. I mean, I guess a team like Everton, where you would, I guess, if you're new to it, you'd see them at the bottom and be like, "The hell's going on there?" And that's what you should be thinking because you know they've got a, a striker, Richarlison, who starts for Brazil. Like he is the starting striker for Brazil, and he plays for Everton. Um, and you know they just can't get it together. They had to fire their coach. They've got Frank Lampard, who's a Chelsea legend, is coaching them now, um, and they're trying to figure it out. Was Lampard um, yeah. was the coach at Chelsea? Wasn't that a short stint? Yeah, have that right. Yes, that is correct. He was at Chelsea. Did not do great. Um, got rid of him, and now he's at Everton. And they're slowly but surely figuring out. Only but like, three clear, clear of well relegation, though. You mentioned they are in trouble figuring out. Yes. But like that's only three points out. No, definitely. It's, it's one game. That's one loss away from you know being in that spot, which for them would be just a ginormous disaster. Um, but, yeah, I mean, all these teams, I mean, Leeds, like, I, we could definitely talk about them. They hired an American coach, which is unheard of. I don't know if he's the first Premier League American head coach ever, um, but he might be. I don't, I don't think he is. They had to have had one, at least at some point. Um, and they've won two in a row now. But, like, they've got elite players. You know, one of their midfielders who's been injured is the starting midfielder for England. You know, they have, you know, a, a guy, Brent, I mean, uh, Patrick Bamford, who is – He's always hurt, but he has been a one of the better strikers in the league, and they're 16th. You know, they got all these teams have tons of talent. I mean, it is the most expensive. It is the best league in the world. Like, none of these teams are scrubs. They will go and they will beat the crap out of a ton of different teams. Um, and that's why it's just so competitive, and it's these teams are just – they're just different. What's up with your club? Sixth. Shit show. <laughs> really? Like what? What's happened? I know they they had a bad start. Seemed like they figured it out a bit, but uh, I don't think they were sixth the last time we did a soccer corner. I think they were somewhere in the top four. It looks like Tottenham's maybe passed them. Arsenal. What's, what's yeah. been going well, on? Arsenal. Arsenal's figured it out completely. I mean, they're a completely different team. Arteta's got them rolling. They they uh really have just been really impressive. Tottenham has been up and down, but United like four games in a row have been up in the first half and ended up tying. They're not losing games. They're just tying so many games. You know, they're up 2-0 against West Ham. They lose, I mean, Aston Villa, 2-2. They're up 1-0 against Watford. It ends up being 1-1. You know, they just cannot get over the finish line. You know, they got knocked out of the Champions League against Atletico Madrid at home last week. So, they're out of all competitions. They are sixth in the Premier League. They are interviewing new coaches. Their interim is – you know, trying to figure it out along the way. It's just – it's not been great. They, they really need to finish top four. It's looking glim, I would say, to get there. But it's still possible. Um, 
But then, yeah, it's not been good. In top four, does that get you to Champions League? Is that correct? That is correct. Top four gets you to to qualify for the Champions League next year. Fifth gets you in the Europa League and sometimes in like a playoff. But I think fifth in the EPL is is you get in the Europa League automatically. I was about to ask you what there. So I just looked up, pulled up the fixtures uh, as we come down the home stretch here. Only a few matches left. Now say a few, they might look roughly like 10 or so, but like the season is ending in May. This is not like, or the, it looks like at least from that sense. Um, it, it looks like there's no longer a marathon aspect. I was about to ask you, what is there to play for? So you've got um, a lot, a lot. Man City at 70 points, Liverpool at 69. Nice. But then there's a 10-point drop-off to third there. You mentioned, like, you just have to play for. But in terms of, like, winning this sucker, is there now a two-team race? Is 10 points too much to overcome with 12-ish matches? Say a dozen matches left, it looks like. Is that too much? Or what does this look like in terms of winning this thing? Oh, This is a two-team race, which is exciting. Because last few years, it's been a Man City or Liverpool just slaughter fest. You know, it's been been no race towards the end. And Liverpool has been on fire. I mean, they're – one of the best teams in the world right now. Just the way they've been playing. They uh, bought a guy from Porto, Luis Diaz, who has been awesome for them. Like, it's just so typical. You know, United can buy a player and he can't perform for two months. And Liverpool buys a player who, like, fits perfectly with what they do and is, like, literally starting for them immediately. He's awesome. And they have just been on fire. And Man City still has been great, but just, like, They've drawn a few matches and like slowly but surely Liverpool's, they probably won five or six in a row, have finally crept up to them. And uh, Liverpool beat Arsenal the past week and Man City tied against like Crystal Palace on the road. And all of a sudden it's a one, one point difference. I think they play each other in two weeks, which, I mean, if you're a sports fan, that's, a, that's must watch television. It's two of the best teams in the world. Um, the winner will most certainly be in the driver's seat to win this whole thing. And it's, it's going to be a fun down down the end to uh, watch the race for that. And of course the race for fourth, which is, you know, West Ham, Man United, Tottenham and Arsenal are all kind of jockeying for that fourth spot to get in the champions league, which is huge. I mean, players contracts change when you make the champions league, you know, if you're trying to buy players in the summer, certain players demand, I know I want to play champions league football. I'm not going to Tottenham or Arsenal or United. If you're not in it, Um, it's kind of like, I mean, it's, if you're, in a, a bowl band for football. It's like, you know, yeah. I'm not going there. You can't play in a bowl game. You know, I'm not going there. You can't play in the champions league. Uh, it's it's going to be fun to watch both those races down the end. So you mentioned, I was about to ask that. So West Ham's there at seventh place. They're six points back of fourth place. That seems at least somewhat reasonable to do. What like for West, I'd always judge this as whether I've heard of your club, West Ham. I've heard of them, had heard of them before I got ingratiated into the uh, football across the pond over there. If they get into, like, the fourth spot and they steal, like, a Champions League spot, like, how big of a deal is that for a club like that? Is that just, like, massive people celebrating in the streets type of thing? Yes. I mean, that's huge. That's like that's like winning the league for for a team like that. I can't remember the last time West Ham was in the Champions League. I'm sure they have been at some point, I'm sure. They're in the Europa League right now, and uh, they're, they're still in the competition. They're still – they got to the quarterfinals. It's massive. I mean, Wolves are – they're eight back. I would say that's highly unlikely, but like a team like that. Europa a big deal, though? That's what I was going to ask next. Huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. You know, no one's like United. I've heard of Wolverhampton. I think that's a cool-ass name, though. Yeah. United and Tottenham and Arsenal in the Europa League is like, that's kind of a disappointment. Um, United more than the other two. 
but West Ham Wolves, like that would be just, it's massive. It's more money. It's more games. It's more, you know, another competition to play in. It's a big, it's a huge, huge deal. Um, Yeah, no, it's huge. Have we missed anything? I can't remember. I need to take a picture of the standings between these soccer corners because I don't remember if anyone's dropped. It looks like Brighton's dropped a little bit. I mean, they're having a pretty decent season. Yeah. Um, there's one more in there. Oh, Crystal Palace. Maybe they have one. Have we missed any major storylines? I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to the expert at this juncture. Well, I think we missed definitely the most interesting storyline, which is Chelsea and the fact that their owner no longer owns the team. Oh, yeah. No, that's uh, that's been – I think it's I think it's actually the most interesting story in sports right now. And that's not just from a soccer standpoint. I think it is fascinating what's going to happen there. What what is like so he had to, to to recap it in general terms. He's a Russian oligarch. He was basically forced to sell the team immediately. Which look, if you kept up with sports at all, like selling a team is not like, hey, you want to buy this? Let's sign a contract. Let's get this done in a couple of days. Sometimes selling a team can take months and even into a year. But this has had to happen fast. What is actually going on here? As as best as you know. So Roman. Abramovich is his name. He bought Chelsea probably 19 or 20 years ago and has, I mean, it was a a club that was always around, but has completely changed the dynamic of that place. They are one of the best teams in the world, won the Champions League last year, won it multiple times, won the league. They're just a completely different club since he's taken over. Uh, He was basically, his funds were held, you know, they were sanctioned and he was forced to sell the team and he came out and kind of had a statement like, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this the right way. I'm going to put it in kind of a trust and then we're going to figure it out. And then eventually like the, you know, the British government and Russia, they're like, no, we're not doing this. Like you, you have to sell this team immediately. Like, there's no fans or buts. Like you, you're, you're done here. And now they're in the process of getting bids and trying to sell this team as quickly as they can. They have been barred from selling season tickets. Uh, I saw they had to get like plain blue jerseys there for a bit as the sponsorship. The sponsor has left them. It is, it is crazy. It is. I mean, this is a two, two and a half, $3 billion, you know, franchise team club. I mean, there's only so many of those in the world. And I think you've seen, if you kind of followed it, I mean, everyone's coming out of the woodworks to try to buy this club and you know, someone's going to overpay. I mean, I saw the, the Ricketts family that owns the Cubs once in, the, uh, the guy that owns the Jets once in, uh, so there has been rumors of a Saudi Arabian. Oh, uh, hell takeover. yeah. We need two of them there. <laughs> it's all that leftover money from not paying Mickelson is probably what it is. It, it, it could be. That didn't work out, so we're just going to move $3 billion over over this team. It's, it's really interesting what's happening. I mean, this is because, you know, obviously in America, with the exception, I think, of Khan that owns the Jaguars, you know, all these guys are – they're American owners of these teams. You know, they've, they're either passed down through families or I always remember the quote from billions. You ever watch billions? Oh yeah. I love that show. I actually, so they've restarted after COVID and that's next on my list to get back into. Yeah. I, the past few have been whatever, but there was a storyline in billions <clears throat> where he was trying to buy a hypothetical, giants, right? A, a hypothetical. I think I guess it was a giants and yeah. he was on the call with the guy and the guys told him that, like, he's not going to be able to buy that team. He's like, well, you know, in, in America, the, we knight people by owning an NFL franchise. I always thought that was such a fascinating quote from a kind of silly show. You know, it, it's, that's, it's how you unite people in this country is if you own a professional sports team, especially the NFL. The EPL is so different because you're competing with the world. 
And I think there's a very interesting kind of storyline from this is that, you know, what is world football, world soccer, and really all franchises, like what is your moral compass with how you handle these billion dollar businesses? Because in world football, you have these sovereign governments owning these teams. And now you're seeing the ramifications of what can happen when you have a semi-shady owner of a franchise like this. And it always makes me wonder, especially with this Chelsea deal, what would happen if this happened in the U.S.? It, it just it would if that something was sanctioned or somebody like had to sell their franchise immediately. I know you've seen it with you know some controversies like Donald Sterling and the Clippers. But it's not the I don't, same. Not the same. It's not the same. It's also not the same quality. I know they paid a lot of money for the Clippers, but it, that's not Chelsea. It's a completely different deal. And I don't know if they're going to fix it. I don't know if anyone in America cares about it. I don't necessarily know if I care about it. But it's so, I thought it's just fascinating the way that this whole Russia-Ukraine deal has crept into sports and at one of the highest levels, having someone like this with clearly weird intentions owning a club like this. And, you know, I think this is something – you can learn this lesson in American sports, and I don't think enough of the casual sports fan understands this unless you're a fan of a professional team with bad ownership. But ownership is everything in professional sports. If you have a crap owner, sometimes you can overcome it, but you really don't stand a chance. Look at the Knicks. They have a terrible owner in James Dolan, and there's no reason the Knicks should suck their disaster. Look at the Washington football team. Probably one of the worst owners in professional sports. Total disaster the last three years. That's exactly. not a coincidence over and over and over again. Ownership is everything. And from the little I've gathered about soccer and how getting players and all that works, look, some rich guy is going to buy Chelsea and they're going to spend a ton of money. But I feel like if that guy doesn't necessarily know what he's doing, that could actually change a lot of the dynamic of things. Because in soccer, there's no salary cap. It's like, we're going to go buy this guy. We're going to go buy this guy. Maybe that's easier because you can't screw it up. But it's certainly a good in a, in a sport and league where ownership is everything that makes it all the more significant. So it's, it's 100% true. And it's, it's crept into soccer from an American standpoint because, you know, John Henry, who owns the Red Sox, owns Liverpool. And uh, who's my guy that owns the Rams that everyone hates? Uh, oh, Kroenke. Stan, Stan Kroenke owns Arsenal and the Glazer family who owns the Tampa Bay Bucks owns Manchester United. And these three clubs, whenever they have been down, have just hated, especially Arsenal and United, because they've been down kind of for a while to their standards. Having an American owner who doesn't fully understand the sport has just been a nightmare for these teams. So some of these clubs have, they've kind of the fans and the, the media have kind of just been like, you know what? these other Saudis who pay all this money and get the sport and love it and just don't care. You know, I think we might be okay with that because our team is going to benefit from it. See Manchester city, Paris St. Germain who are owned and uh, who are owned by these just conglomerates, Saudi, Saudi, Qatari, whatever they are, they just don't care. But now you see what happened with Chelsea when you had that kind of owner, bad ownership and the owners are everything in soccer because they pay for these players. I think Obramovich had a two, uh, like a $2 billion loan outstanding to Chelsea because he spent so much money and he's not getting it repaid. He's just like, you know, that's not what it's about. Um, and he probably doesn't have the option to have it repaid for paying for all these players and, you know, renovations or whatever the hell goes into that amount of money that he spent on this club over 20 years. Um, it's just interesting. It's kind of like when you see the Broncos or you always talk about Jeff Bezos trying to buy one of these teams, like we really want that in one of these franchises where, I mean, you're seeing the salary cap is meant less and less and less. It's just, 
it's hard to imagine having an owner being like that and then having to have the moral morality of being like, okay, this can come back to bite us dramatically if it goes wrong. I think you're seeing that with Chelsea. I think they'll be fine, but they're in a shit shit right now. I mean, some of the sanctions are crazy that they're having to deal with. They have, they have no bank account. They, they, they thought they were going to have to drive <clears throat> to one of their matches in the Champions League um, or take a train because, like, oh my we, God. We, don't, we don't have a plane that we can use anymore. <laughs> you know, we don't have a bank account that's functioning right now because our owner is being sanctioned for war crimes in Ukraine. It's just it's, – it's one of the craziest stories in sports. It is fascinating. Yeah, like, you think college football is wild. Like, I don't, like we don't have stuff like that. It's like, well, Texas, Texas A&M and Texas Tech and TCU, they're actually not allowed to go to a bowl game this year. It's like, wow paying recruits no, no 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 greg abbott took the national guard and made in mexico like they're out for a bit <laughs> i don't even know what like, you couldn't even dream of stuff like that like it's it's wild i'm actually fascinated to kind of continue to monitor that last soccer thing you mentioned tagged me in something the other night i think u.s national team sounds like they're in trouble so this is feels like this is what happens every year um you're not wrong <laughs> i say every year every fourth year it's like they're fine they're going to qualify it's like they're not going to qualify why are they not going to qualify what's happening fill me up to date so they're in, currently in second place they're tied for second with mexico which means they're technically qualifying right now their last three matches that start on thursday are at mexico home against panama and at costa rica okay um a, a listener listening to that would be like, okay, you know, Mexico's going to be in trouble, but Panama and Costa Rica, we should be fine there. So they need four points. They need to win one and tie one just to get to get in. Um, Canada's basically already in, and then the other three spots are kind of up for grabs. And if you don't get that, you go into a playoff against like New Zealand or something. But it, it's weird. I don't never seen how that works. Sometimes you just don't do it. Um, they don't win in Mexico. They don't win at Azteca. It, you just don't do right, it. I remember yeah. that. That's the mile high of the south, or the right. southern border, I should say, not the south. Yeah. Uh, another thing is they don't win in Costa Rica. I think they have won like once there in the last four or five rounds of these qualifiers. So they have a home match against Panama, who's in fourth, who is also a really tough team to play and really good. They also have to do this without Weston McKinney, who's their probably been their best player during qualifying. Serginio Dest, who plays for Barcelona, is hurt. And Brendan Aronson, who plays in Salzburg, who was in the Champions League, he is also hurt. They have not been able to play a single time during this whole qualifying with their full best roster because they've always had injuries, whether it's Pulisic, Gio Reyna, who is actually back now. He plays for Dortmund. He's, he's probably the best player on the team with Pulisic. Um, but it's also – it's not just that, but you have to kind of figure out – they play three games in nine days. So you're not going to play the same 11 starting every single game. So there's a, a conversation. It's like, well, do you kind of just give up the Mexico game and try to, your best to draw and then, you know, get your full team out there for Panama, win the home game. But then you're kind of laying it all out in the line on the road at Costa Rica where you haven't been overly successful. It's, it's not – a disaster but it could be it's it's very 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 interesting you may outline that at the top but i got a phone call huge day in the grease industry but um it, it screwed up my audio for a second um 
but how did we get here? Like, how were they fine and then they weren't fine? Like, how did we get to the point where you're sitting there thinking, oh, man, they might not be in trouble? Like, it seemed like – I can't remember what the match was, but I feel like it happened right around the time we did the last podcast where it's like they had a decent result. They're fine. What has happened to this point that makes them potentially not fine, or is this just kind of how it goes? Um, it's pretty difficult to qualify for the World Cup in CONCACAF. There's four yeah. teams. Um, they've had just bad results. I mean, starting off – uh, I mean, they tied 0-0 at El Salvador, who was the worst Not team in, in the Hex. Not great. The next game, they were up 1-0 on Canada at home, and they gave up that lead. So that's the team that's number one right now. They're basically in. So you had that game and you lost it. Then you go to Panama and lose 1-0. Um, you know, you win a few in between there against Honduras and Jamaica. You, you're basically – they're just not getting any results on the road. They are winning all of their home games. And they are just have been incapable of winning away from the U.S. And I know these teams aren't, you know, Portugal and France, but playing on the road in some of these smaller countries, I mean, it is hostile. It is a completely different deal from playing in the Premier League. You know, those are crazy crowds and everything, but it's not guarded, you know, sidelines. It's just a different deal. And they have not been able to be healthy and they have not been able to really capitalize on some of these road games, which has led them to here. Um, and Costa Rica won like two games in a row. So now they're in the mix when they weren't at the beginning. So mathematically, if they don't get four points. There's a chance that they do not qualify. Yeah, you the, the road part of it is fascinating to me because I've read a decent bit about this. And it's like, look, not to be insensitive, but I think there's a far cry from like mustard bottles at Neyland Stadium and then like, hey, what's the metal detector situation down there in Costa Rica? Like what's going to be up in yeah. the stands? That type of deal, like what? What do we have going on here? So as we, as we a little bit different, <laughs> yeah, just slightly. It's a lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. Um, what is like as you look at that stretch, you just outlined that stretch. If what is like the one game you'd circle and be like, hey, if they get this result, they're actually okay. Like, is there a swing game changer? I know you outlined. Do you just try to go all in for the home game? What do you think they need to do? What would be like the most realistic scenario where they win it? And you're like, okay, they're in, they're in the clear ish. Um. I, they have to win the home game. They have to beat Panama. That's on Sunday. Um, and that's that's kind of stomach churning, right? To where it's like, are they going to screw this up? That's a weird vibe in the stadium that night. Yes, because if it comes down the last game, like it did four years ago at Trinidad, and they they lost that road game. Yes, they lost to Trinidad and Tobago on the road. Yeah, I remember. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know if that was a province. Is that one of those communist <laughs> Andinista deals? I was like, who is this? How did they beat us? Yeah, in it's. I mean, you would like to get a point at Mexico and then win the home game and then call it call it a day and not have it come down to playing on the road at Costa Rica where you have just never really been successful. Um, I think it really, if they just somehow lose that game to Panama and it comes down to having to win at Costa Rica especially the third game out of nine days with these guys where you're injury ridden, you don't have some of your best players, you could be in serious trouble. And that would be an absolute disaster if they do not make it. They're too good. They're too good to not make it. I think the coaching has been pretty bad, but just straight talent wise, there's no excuse. And it it would be just a total egg in the face. Well, and for the content sake of this podcast next winter, like I get bowl games are fine. What that would just sour everything. It wouldn't just feel right. It felt it felt terrible lap four years ago when they weren't in it. It's like, man, like I love this. I'm gonna watch every game, but there was nothing like watching the U.S. play in the World Cup yeah. at the, the years before that. You know, even if you didn't give a shit about soccer, you're still watching those games. And they had some just amazing finishes. I mean, it's just 
the Landon Donovan Algeria thing. I don't know the next thing about soccer, but I remember watching that. I was still in like high school, middle school, whatever it was. The yeah. Like that was awesome. Like I, I, I actually got into it. I, I know exactly what you mean. Exactly. So you can't have that. That would be a disaster. Pressure's on for Uncle Sam. I can't wait to see how it turns out. I would normally let you go, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least give you a chance to tee off on the LSU situation. We've had the, uh, we've had Will Wade get fired. Honestly, for all the crap Joe Oliva takes, I don't want to call it a genius move, but a very practical move to have him to restructure the contract to where he's able to be fired with cause if he's named in a level one or level two violation. Maybe I remember that at the time when all this was going on and I just forgot, but that popped back up that week. Just your thoughts on – I'll give you my thought first and just let you go whichever direction you want with this. It seems like at this point they are laying down the football – the basketball program at the heels of the NCAA and like, beat this into submission, please don't touch football. Do you get the same vibe? 100%. I think – Let's let's start with basketball first. Um, I, when Will Wade came, loved him. I thought he was awesome. I went to the NIT game against ULL at home, and he was such a prick to (laughs) ULL coach that I was like, I hate this guy. Like, this guy just doesn't get it. Like, he he came in, he, you know, rustled every feather you could, uh, and then the wiretap came. And what clearly happened after that, you know, I asked myself this, I asked other people, like, why is he not fired? And the, the answer was because once they restructured that contract, they needed the NOA. They needed the proof, and then that, that was gone. I mean, I knew from a, for a fact from a, a family friend who, who knows anything you want to know about LSU sports, they were like, yeah, once they get it, it's, it's done. You know, they just need it in hand. Um, and it was way worse than – I even thought it was. It was bad. It's one of the wildest NOAs. I unfortunately am well-versed in NOAs from the half-decade deal we dealt with at Ole Miss. It is one of the wildest NOAs I've ever read. So to add context real quick to your point, I went from a media standpoint, the three times Will Wade came through Oxford for whatever it was when he was at Ole Miss, I thought he was funny. It was like, this guy he is funny. No, the, no he, he is funny. On his face. Like, he's like, it's like the kid that you know everyone in the industry and around him hates, but it's kind of funny that he's funny it. But I, not that I'm I'm far from very well connected, I'll say, in SEC basketball circles, but the couple people that I do know that work in other SEC basketball programs talk about that guy in a different way, in a malicious intent, in like basically to hell with this guy, in a different way than I've heard anyone involved with the SEC program ever talk about a guy. Like it is – look, I know everyone cheats. Bruce Pearl's like the lovable version of this. They talk about Will Wade in such a different light. It was kind of jarring to me when I like would listen to it. Yeah, so his shit got a little old, got a little old once all that stuff came out, and he was just like, you know, us against the world. Like he kept the same attitude. You know, he won one regular season SEC title, which is impressive, but he really hadn't done anything. Right. And his his namesake was tied to this wiretap, and he was just keep on keeping on. Um, and then it all comes out, and he's fired like the second later because that's exactly what he meant to that program. The LSU football stuff is tied to it as well. I mean, um, the, the hoops in OA, though, let's just run through it real quick. Go, go ahead. He, yeah. paid, he paid hush money to the fiancé of a former basketball player who I guess was threatening to talk and kind of – and then he pays, him, he pays her one time. She so goes back because I guess she bought a car or whatever the case may be. It was like – this guy has no leverage. I'm going to squeeze whatever nickel and dime out of my can. And he sends her a text message. It's like, 
hey, look, you said we were done the first time I paid you. I thought yeah. we were done. He was paying recruits out of a joint bank account and under his wife's name. He's promising dudes, families that are from overseas, jobs and visas. I, as bad as the old Miss stuff, whatever you want to make of it was, I know they got the dreaded lack of institutional control. I never saw reckless abandon in Ole Miss's NOA either way. And that was in there like three times in LSU's NOA. It was insane to read, and I'm not surprised by anything in this industry anymore. It, it, it was it was what I heard was coming. I heard it was like, it was so much worse and like laughably bad that he was going to be fired once it came and all they needed was it to come. I think LSU fans and media, like some guys I listen to a lot, like Colada and Moscona, who I like but sometimes are a little biased, they even had to completely change their tone once yeah. they saw it. You know, they, they of course, and they're all in the mob mentality, like. Oh, like, you know, Will Way against the world. Like, the NCAA has no balls. Like, they're not going to do anything. And then they saw it, and they're like, oh, no. <laughs> like, this is way different than what we had heard and expected. Uh, I get it now. And you've kind of seen that transition. And then somehow, I mean, I don't know what the sanctions are going to be. Maybe this it'll be enough they had to fire their coach. But they hired a hell of a basketball Yeah, coach. what the hell is that? That <laughs> happened today. I couldn't believe that. I saw that. I actually made a comment on a podcast we recorded on Sunday. I got a mailbag question after it. I was like, I saw LSU had some smoke with Pat McMahon, but surely somebody, or excuse me, Matt McMahon, surely will someone will get in that guy's ear and wise, and he'll wise up and not actually take that job. Guess what? He does take the job. Scott Woodward, round of applause. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, I know what he's doing. You see, the guy got the seven-year contract. If they get a multi-year postseason ban, it's eight. So, yeah, your eight-year contract, Matt McMahon. Like, it's just amazing to me. Congrats to him on that. But like. Just a wild NOA, and then to wrap up here, because I want to get your opinion on this, the NCAA, I think this goes in cycles. You've worked in this industry. You understand how all this works. I think, you know, people talk about the NCAA has no balls. You're talking about the Miscana angle. And for a while, I thought that. I was like, LSU's just sticking their – because I didn't know the inner workings of it. LSU's just sticking their middle finger at the NCAA. You're spineless. You're becoming obsolete. This NIL stuff's going to run you to the ground. That's not actually how this works. And if you remember, the NCAA botched the Miami thing. They botched well, the North Carolina thing. North Carolina thing, thing is, I think, is the, the biggest one. Yes, and the Penn State thing didn't really stick. And so when Ole Miss came around, I have not, that kind of st- rubbed the NCAA's noses in it with the way Hugh Freeze acted. This goes in cycles, and they look to make example of folks. And they whatever you – unbiased, biased, whatever, they made an example at Ole Miss. When you look at what Ole Miss actually did versus what they received and how the public chid show and how that dragged out, they 100% wanted a pelt on the wall. And to make an example, we still run the show here. This feels like the home run swing of all home run swings. If they're going to actually claim they have some legitimacy in governing this sport, even though it's a farce of a government – this feels like they might go nuclear. And I'm not a big believer in the NCAA, oh, the big, mighty NCAA. But if history tells you anything, they, they could nuke two programs pretty good here just for the sake of we still run the show here. And that's what feels like this is coming to a head. How much can they prove and how much of it sticks? I think you're right. The difference is is I, I think the football program is going to be fine here. I don't think they get them. I think their basketball program is going to be in the gutter for a few years. I think they're screwed. Eight-year deal might uh, not be long enough. Yeah. Um, Football-wise, it's a small part of the NOA, but it is in there. And the allegation that everything that happened there is is really, really bad. It, it, there's no way around it. It's a terrible look. It's even more than they initially thought. They had a little bit more in there. Um, 
they already kind of took the postseason ban as which was a genius idea. They were a five and five team who didn't even deserve a bowl and they took it because who cares? It was a COVID season. Um, Ogeron's not there anymore. Les Miles is not there anymore. Um, and Scott Woodward is Mark Emmert's uh, son-in-law. So what a Thanksgiving feast coming up. Like, how do they handle that? Obviously, Mark is not working day to day on stuff like this, but he's obviously informed. Um, I just don't see them taking a hack out of that football program. I don't doubt that there's going to be more added on because they might not accept that bull ban and think that that's enough. I would just be shocked if they if they pulled a, a two birds one stone deal and just knocked them both down a peg. Not saying they shouldn't, because I I think the the football team needs because the people that have done some of this stuff are still hired are still there. Some of the administrative people and that's that's always been my biggest thing that I think that's a huge problem, though not directly correlated with the NOA stuff. Directly correlated with some of the the sexual allegations and stuff like that. You know, those people are just still there no doing their job like nothing has ever happened there and maybe they make a statement and obviously football for that for that program is way more important than basketball even though they've had real basketball success in history and in the, even with will wade I, I just don't know if they're going to go all out i don't know if they have enough to go all out and you've seen kind of with football they really with the exception of all this of course it's been a minute since they've really dug in deep on a team, and I think they have the ammunition to do it. Just not sure they're going to. I'm kind of with you in some senses on that because when you actually look at the bulk of the issues, Will Wade was spearheading most of the level one violations, lack of institutional control. But what the level one violations are for the football, the Our Lady of the Lake deal, not great. But I kind of with you on that. I think football will probably get, I would say, hit moderately hard and then end up being okay. But that basketball program is going to get nuked. But I'm fascinated to see how it plays out from the appeals process. You know, I was talking, texting with a buddy of mine who that like, covers it down there. He's like, okay, they're finally kind of be out of the woods. There'll be some uh, clarity and all this. I'm like, no, this appeals process and all that, this is going to drag it's, out a while. It, it, it takes this, this is far from over. So, yeah, it's not going to start. It's not going to end by the, the beginning of the season, I don't think. So, oh, hell no. No yeah. shot. Like, no. It, it, it'll be dragging out he is weldon rodenberg rippy rights epl correspondent did a thing or two in uh, college football for a while i appreciate the time i'm in it was spring uh, practice for the rippy rights football podcast we are uh, entering mid-season form we will holler at you again soon my man i right, appreciate it Rip. all right that is our show if you made it to the end i really appreciate you making us a part of your day whatever it is that you're doing while listening to this might do one of those segments again where do you listen to the show from uh, those always produce interesting answers. Had a guy checking in a couple weeks ago letting us know that uh, he had the podcast on while getting a vasectomy. Hope all is well with your balls there, pal. Anyway, um, thanks for making us a part of your day. We'll be back at it with probably a Mailbag Friday and a Tennessee Series preview uh, with Colin Brister um, there on Friday. So back to the normal podcast schedule. How about that? I'm not a hero, but if you want to call me one, I wouldn't deny it. Uh, but the real heroes, firefighters and such out there. Anyway, y'all have a great start to your week or middle of your week, whatever, and we will catch you on Friday.